0: All right, here we go in three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man who served with the 10th Mountain Division in Iraq, where he received a Purple Heart for injuries that he sustained. He's also a 10-year veteran of the Louisville Police Department, serving in positions such as patrol, the U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force, and the Special Response Team. He also served briefly with the U.S. Border Patrol. But in 2020, when the absolutely horrific riots that tore apart most major cities in the United States, he decided Decided to return to Louisville and stand shoulder to shoulder with his brothers and sisters in blue to put an end to the senseless violence and acts that were gripping America. My guest also had his fair share of heartbreak in his life. He lost his mother to suicide after recently learning of a severe depression and a life that he had no idea was happening behind closed doors. My guest battled unseen demons and at one point even lost his will to live. But like in the best redemption stories, he was pulled out of the fire by people who truly cared about him, refocused his life, priorities, and the strength to help others. He's now blazing all new trails for his family, career, podcast, and published writings. He's the author of I Am Pitts. Please welcome Dexter Pitts. What's up, my man?
1: What's up, my man? Thanks for having me, brother. Man, what a heck of an intro. Well,
0: thank you. Thank you very much, uh... Yeah, so there's so much to talk about. Now, we usually, when we start this, we go right into the youth. I can't do that with this book. The intro sucked me in, and we got to talk about that night because everything that I read in the book, everything that I've learned about you, that seems like the lowest day of your life. Am I right?
1: Oh, absolutely, brother. That was, man, I don't ever want to go back to a place like that again. I mean, it's just dark when there's just in this dark hole and hopeless. And you feel like your only way out is death. But the problem is at that time in my life, you know, I was, I was a coward, man. I didn't have the courage to do it myself, but I was in the right profession to have somebody do it for me.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that night. So we, we, we open the book with a traffic stop where you're actually saying you hope that maybe these guys will open fire on you and, and do what we are setting out to talk about on this show. Uh, But Before that even happens, we find out later in the book that you were just at the FOP uh, fraternal order of police parking lot and thinking about doing it. But as you said, you were too scared to do it yourself. So you thought, I'll just be wild, go out there, do my thing, and we'll see what happens from there. You got to explain to me before we get into this whole thing, how you get to a point like that. And does it come on quickly, slowly, or does it just hit you without you even knowing?
1: You know, for a lot of uh, law enforcement and a lot of veterans, man, I think it all comes on slowly. We just don't realize it, you know, because we compartmentalize so much. And, you know, we we tell ourselves that we're Superman when we put on these uniforms and we're not. You know, we just keep pushing stuff down, pushing it down, pushing it down. We're not really dealing with the demons. And then all of a sudden for me, it just all kind of hit at once. You know, it was a slow grind over the years. But what triggered it was the loss of my mother which triggered you know, some issues with my family, then the divorce with my second wife at the time, and then me having my accidental discharge with my shotgun at work, and me thinking, the only thing I have left is my job, and I'm about to lose that. And it just all hit at once, and I, what did I have to keep me here at that point? You know, That's when I made the choice. I was like, man, I drove to the FOP lot. I took my Glock 22. I just sat in my car looking at it because I knew somebody was gonna find me there. You know, and, I, and the thing was, man, I hated to do that to my brothers in blue, but it, I didn't want nobody else to find me. I wanted the only people that I knew and loved and that I cared about to find me. And I just remember sitting there and I put that, put it to my head and took the slack out the trigger, but I didn't have the courage to actually pull it all the way.
0: What's going through your mind as you're doing that?
1: I want to see my mom again. I want to see all my brothers that I lost and. You know and who who here really cares about me you know if nobody's gonna miss me, the world's gonna be a better place without me, and just the fact that this isn't the life that I thought I would live the life I thought I'd have you know like I had created this entire fake life and I was living two separate lives you know and it just and it it catches up with you and it caught up with me
0: all right let's go back because I wanted to set the story because that to me was the best part of the book, the intro. And I told you that when we very first started talking, when I said I found the intro and everything, that to me was the best part of the book. That was the most emotional and gut-wrenching part of the story. And the reason I say that is not because there wasn't other things along the way in the book that were bad or that made you think about things. It shows what one person will do when they think that there's no hope. And I think there's a lot more people out there that are to that point where they think there's no hope. They think that no one's out there watching them. But as we'll find out later on in our conversation, there are people that care. There are people that are hidden in the woodwork that are going to come out for you. Would you agree with that?
1: Oh, yeah, there are. And now I feel like now more than ever, especially within the profession of uh, policing, there's a lot more people speaking out and a lot more the police departments are doing something about it. We now have like an officer wellness program we're doing. And they're trying to raise funds to build an officer wellness center. You know, because if you you know I, the crazy thing about law enforcement officers, we can save the world. But for some odd reason it's so hard to save ourselves, you know, and if we're not all there mentally. What good are we in uniform? You know, at that point, we're a liability.
0: Let's talk about your childhood, because that's where we usually start these conversations. But I wanted to talk about that. And then we get to this. So. Right off the bat, we start talking about your childhood. And the crazy thing that I thought about your childhood was there are so many reversals. Um, when you talk about this, the safety and the sanctity kind of when you were stationed on post as being moved off of post. Uh, and then how racism came at you was from a completely left field way. Like no one sees that coming. So first, let's talk about you growing up with your parents. And I want you to talk about your mom and your dad. Growing up on the post, and then we transitioned kind of to off post.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I was born on Fort Knox, Kentucky, 1984. And my dad, both my mom and dad are from Mississippi in the Mississippi Delta in uh, Bolivar County. You know, so, man, growing up in the military is all I ever knew. Diversity, like I said, even despite my parents being from Mississippi, despite my parents growing up in the 60s in Mississippi, picking cotton and living with real racism, that was never my life and never my experience. You know, so for me growing up, I remember I had a best friend from Panama. His name was Jim. You know, had a, I, had, I just had friends. You know, I didn't have black friends. I had I didn't have white friends. I mean, these were just, these were my boys, man. And we were all different races, creeds, religions, you know, and it just, we just always got along, man. It was always, it was just so perfect. You know, I just remember when the fair would come in the summertime, you know, we'd all ride our bikes down to the fair, you know, down to the PX, you know, then my parents would take me to the fair on Fort Knox. And I mean, I would just watch the tanks and the soldiers. I mean, the military was literally all I knew growing up. So when it comes to when we moved off a of post, it was it was weird because it's like it was a lot of the same people because Radcliffe is a military community, but you then realize that not everybody in the military community has always been in the military. And that's when I realized that, you know, I'm different because I was dark skinned. Like for me, like I said, growing up. On the military post it was never a thing like oh man Dex is really really dark he's really really black never heard that until I think it was like seventh grade when I got on the school bus and I see the black kids in the back of the bus and I'm, ah, what's up everybody you know just I'm just a nice kid man I really not a confrontational person I want to be everybody's friend and I remember sitting down in the back of the bus and then the jokes just started flying like look at this black I'm like language-wise, brother. I'm sorry. Uh, you no, go ahead. You, okay. You explain it <laughs> how you do in the book. <laughs> yeah, you know, just going to the back of the buses and then somebody just starts me. Look at this black nigga right here. Look at this black motherfucker. And I'm just like confused. Like, well, you're black too, but it just completely caught me off guard because that was something we never discussed in my house. Was like racism or being treated different because of how you look. And I mean, like I say we knew about slavery, but I never knew that other black people would treat me bad because i was darker than them you know and it just completely caught me off guard and man my life that that was a low point for me too man just being that young you know not really knowing who you are not having an identity and just these kids are just torturing and terrorizing you every day wanting to beat you up for being dark-skinned but they're black as well you know and just the mob mentality followed man and for me it was just real rough and i mean i just took the abuse because like I, said, I never had to fight really growing up i got in a fight one time in sixth grade and i beat up the schoolyard bully dana anderson you know and that was done but this i was outnumbered i was the only guy there that dark skin and all these other black kids are just you know ganging up on me and i'm just like what do i do and i'm just scared and terrified and i would just freeze and i would just take it you know and i remember sitting in class during the day you know, typically school goes by pretty slow, but man, I remember looking at that clock every day, like, oh my God, here they come. Here they come. And so, you know, for me, I had no identity. I had a good best friend that lived next door, you know, but he was a tall white guy, but he was he saw what was going on. My homeboy was like, Nah, I ain't getting involved in none of that. You know, he was just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah Yeah. He was cool with me when we was off the bus, but I was like, No, I understand, I don't you know, it's not his battle, you know, but you know, man, I just remember thinking that we weren't poor and the people that were picking on me, you know, they lived in the hood in Radcliffe, yo. So for me, I'm thinking, man, maybe if I got some cool clothes, maybe if I got some nice shoes, you know, I'll fit in with everybody. Everybody like, Hey man, check out Dex rocking the FUBU man. Cause everybody know back in the day FUBU was the jams, man. I remember when my mama bought me that orange and black FUBU jacket for Christmas. Yo, I was like, man, I'm about to show out to school and stunt on everybody. I had a fat Albert chain, had some nice clothes. I remember stepping up on the bus like, yeah, and they was like, oh man, check out Dex's jacket. And so I'm just starting stunting and they like, man, that's a nice jacket. And you know what? That day was great, man, because like nobody said anything to me. And so in my mind, I'm thinking my clothes and this chain I got on is protecting me. So, ah, I guess I'm cool now. We all friends now. We cool. Right? So I remember the end of the day comes, you know, I'm sitting on the bus. I start getting hot. I take off the jacket. And then I guess one of the sub leaders of the group, his name's Terrell, just reaches over and takes my jacket. And I wanted to fight back so bad, but I was so scared because they were just looking at me in the back of the bus, daring me, bring your black ass back here and see what happened. So I just remember getting off the bus, man. I'm going home and I'm crying. You know, my jacket's gone and I don't want my mom to see me crying. So I go to my room. She knows, like, where's your jacket at, boy? And I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to tell her. I don't want to tell her. I was like, uh, kids on the bus took it, Mama. What do you mean they took took that jacket? You know how much hard I worked to get that jacket? Man, so she's, get in the car. Man, we drive over there and I'm just like, man, don't do this, Mama, you're gonna make it worse. You're gonna make it worse. So we drive up, man, she don't know what apartment they live in and she just start knocking on every door in the complex. <laughs> you know, Mama Dukes was on a mission to get back that FUBU jacket, boy. Man, we found Terrell's apartment. Man, I remember the smell of smoke coming from this apartment. His mom, you could tell, man, she she was a welfare queen, man. And this cat, you could tell he was living a rough life. But, you know, that didn't matter. So, you know, she's like, you know, my son says your son stole his jacket. She's like, Terrell, you got this boy's jacket. Man, I remember he comes back up with the FUBU jacket, man, and gives it to me. We go back to the car, and I could smell smoke on it, man. And it was (laughs) I was so mad because he stole – the magic of the jacket man that jacket was like pristine nobody in school had that jacket now now it was like tarnished and tainted and i didn't want nothing to do with it but there ain't no way i was telling my black mama from mississippi you worked hard to get me this jacket i ain't wearing this jacket no more because she would have killed me you know so man yeah that was like pretty much my existence for the first couple years in the civilian side of life man it started out rough brother it really did
0: I want to ask you something, and and, and we, we talk about when you're down on the ground and then from 30,000 feet a lot, and, and when you get some distance away from it, and you can think about it. I want you to think back to that kid now, and everything you know from being a police officer, from everything that you've learned about yourself, and you just said it, and you can kind of tell it in your voice, this kid was living a rough life. Do you look at that different now in that situation and think maybe, well, hurting people hurt people, or do you look at it different or do you do you still have that animosity because childhood stuff can stick with you for a long time where you still don't like the person but do you look at it differently now
1: i look at it completely different you know because i am a different person from when i was like i guess what 12 years old to now 38 years old complete different person you know so man one of the things in my book is you know i had to learn how to forgive people and let go and especially as a cop now you know i see why people do a lot of the things they do you know when people hurt somebody or some are still it's not necessarily stealing to just steal some people are stealing for survival they need food you know and that's one of those things where it's just as a cop you have to like kind of weigh the options of what you're about to do you know but for me terrell and all those guys i mean he's still in and out of jail but man there's a part in my book that a lot of people really liked and enjoyed yo, but the leader of the pack was a girl named rhonda brown in, in Radcliffe. I I'm mean, glad you brought this up. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, man, she man, she, she was the one terrorized me. And I was terrified of her. And I was bigger than her. But, so, for me, like I said, I held all these...
0: Can I can I stop you there? I want you to explain just how much bigger than you were than these kids. Because you were not an average-sized kid growing up. You were a, a big kid.
1: So, I was a big dude, man. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, man.
0: It, it's crazy to hear you say, yeah, this girl just terrified me along with this crew she ran and I want people to understand just how bad this was because you mention it numerous times in the book about how bad it was when they got that wolf pack mentality
1: going yeah man like they they forced me into a corner all the time every time I turned around I was just in a corner and I had nobody there and I mean I'm just looking at myself I know I'm bigger than them I know I could bust all their asses as if I wanted to but I just did not have that in me just I, like I, said, I didn't know who I was, I hadn't been tested like that. I grew up in a safe haven of the military base. It is literally a utopia, you know. And now I never had controversy. And now it's here, and you know they say when you're in combat, you know you don't know how you're going to re- react. You know when you first make contact, and this was my first contact, man. I did not know how to react, but eventually, I grew a pair of balls. And I remember my mom telling me one day, "Stop letting people push you around. Defend yourself. Protect yourself." So I remember that one day I was like, "Man, you know what?" We gonna do this we gonna dance and i remember i went home i got a sock would have put a pool ball wallet put a blade in my pocket and i put a chain around my neck i was like all right man we going to war i gave myself a little op order you know <laughs> and i was like man either i'm gonna wait for them to get on the bus get to this point and then i'm gonna lunge at them and attack them or should i wait for them to come and attack me you know <laughs> and then and in my mind i'm thinking i gotta take out Rhonda because she's the leader first then i gotta take out Terrell because he's the next biggest to her you know and just started plotting man started plotting and thank god it never got to that point you know they never attacked me and somehow slowly but surely by the grace of god they just all kind of went away but even though they went away the hostility and the anger that I had from that never went away and I carried that with me for years man even before I became a cop I always said to myself I want revenge and I want to extract it on each of them when i get the opportunity and i mean i held on to it for years and i remember when i became a cop in louisville and i was like man one day i'm gonna run into these cats and i'm gonna let them have it just no, justifiably i'm gonna let them have it and man after i went through all my stuff and all my traumas and my ups and downs and actually started to find meaning in my life and actually found a real relationship with jesus christ the need for revenge went away and it, i knew it went away when i got i was working off duty at the galt house one night We got a call about a homeless vagrant that was sitting up in the hallway that had not paid for a room. And I remember walking up and I could smell booze in the hallway. I'm like, oh man, this person's definitely drunk. And I'm walking up to this person and I'm like, well, I'll be damned, Rhonda Brown. Man, she was at her lowest, like trespassing, good to go to jail, no doubt. And I was just like, oh my God, thank you. I have prayed and waited for this moment for 20 plus years. Oh man, I remember reaching for my handcuffs like I'm about to show her, I'm ready, man. Like, oh y'all don't even know, I've been waiting forever. And something in me said to myself, like, dude, how is you taking her to jail gonna serve her? Better yet, how's it even really gonna serve you? You know, and like at that point, I had no need to exact revenge on these kids for all they had done to me because I I had moved on. Like so I was a different person. And the Bible always says, you know. God won't forgive you unless you've forgiven others. And I had already forgave them. So if I already forgave them, why take this opportunity to use my power, although justifiable and legal, you know, discretion is a big thing in policing. And man, I used my discretion that night to let her go because I knew that, you know what? I'm in a better position than she is right now. And I'm not going to be any better than her. If I take advantage of her and her lowest point, over something she did to me, like, you know, 15 years later, you know, 15 years ago. And I remember her just getting up. She didn't say much to me, you know, but I remember getting on the escalator and just going down the escalator and just that look in her eyes, you know, like, I remember that look. Like, I, I used to see that same look in myself when I would look in the mirror, man, and just just that emptiness, that loneliness, that loss, and just, just seeing her going down that escalator, man. That was the last time I saw her and she died, like, a couple years later. And the one thing for me was always weird was people singing her praises like, man, she was such a nice person and a sweet person. And I'm like, man, this chick was a monster to me. But, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know how it is when you die, man. Everybody ain't got nothing but good stuff to say about you. yo. But I'm like, man, now that I'm older, I was like, I wish I had known that version of her. And, you know, she had a lot of hurt in her life, man. Anytime you find somebody somewhere reeking of alcohol in a public place, man, they're battling demons, man. Say so I battled those demons, and she was battling demons. And why should I add to her demons? Locking her and putting her in jail was going to help her. Now, it wasn't even going to do nothing for me. Did she remember you? Oh, she remembered me. Really? I, could, well, I had to spark her memory because she was sitting there. I was like, you remember me, Rhonda? She was like looking at me like, how do you know my name? I was like, it's me. I started calling them all the names you used to call me on the bus. What's up, Midnight? What's up, Blackie? What's up, Spook? half past midnight you know that and she heard those names and like her eyes got big like oh my god it's him like yeah what's up now you know but it did feel good to put a little bit of fear in her but to <laughs> be lying if i said i didn't man. it felt good to like get a little respect but you know the respect don't come from the uniform man i hope that she respected me more for actually letting her go
0: yeah yeah I, I, it, I think the only thing that would have made it better is if she would have had that Fubu jacket on when you saw her. That would have been.
1: Grab that joint from the goodwill. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so I, I want to ask you something, and it, and it kind of I don't I don't want to say it bothered me during the book, but it it made me think a lot. You mention your mom tons in the book. You mention your dad, but you never really mention. Life lessons or stand up for yourself or learning who you are or learning about what you're doing. Can can you describe the difference between your dad in your life and your mom in your
1: life? Yeah, man. So, my dad, he is an old school Southern black man, brother. You know, I mean, there's no talker, there's no I love yous, there's no, hey, you did great, kid. It's just, hey, I'm out working, providing. When I tell you to do something, you do it. That was it the only thing we really talked about was the bible you know i remember i asked my dad one time we were shooting basketball in a very rare moment in the backyard and i asked him i was like maybe 11 12 and i was like say something about sex and, <laughs> and we we're a southern pentecostal family he's like only thing you need to know about sex boy to so marry people i don't want to hear nothing else about it yeah <laughs> that was it that was it you know we didn't man my father was a provider that was it a provider you know i he taught me some lessons you know about racism when i we had an encounter in uh i forgot i think we were in tennessee you know he was driving trucks after he retired you know and i was denied service by this white guy at this restaurant and i didn't understand at the time because i was so young you know i was like man like why can't i have this food like other people are eating you know my dad you know black man from mississippi he was like nah bro we out here let's go son let's leave he saw it you know and he explained it to me that you know there's gonna be bad people in this world that don't like you because of the color of your skin but don't use that as an excuse to be a crappy person Work hard and you will eventually get what you want, you know, and that's pretty much what I got from my dad. That, and I used to get dumped with the Bible. That was it. You know, everything for me and my dad was church related. My mom, she was a mother, loved me through it all, was there for everything. My mom, you know, my best moments, my worst moments, but you know, she was also a terror when she needed to be, you know, she, she would break out the switch, well, make me go outside and pick a switch, strip off the little outside of it and then wear me out, you know, but after she would with me she would consult me and love on me and tell me she loved me and she would tell me why she did it and because you know she had these high expectations for me so my mom was always a central point in my life and that's why she's mentioned so much throughout the book you know because she was always there you know my dad was a round you know but that was it so the life lessons I learned from him were important but I feel like a lot more of what I learned from him now that I'm older I'm looking back is I've learned what not to do in a lot of things because, you know, my mom has been deceased as of today, August 29th, uh, 2022. My mom's been gone 12 years, you know, so for me, it's been, you know, just she always used to tell me, don't treat your wife like your father treats me. And I would hear that and I didn't know what that meant until now that I'm older and I have a wife and two kids, you know, and I know that she's looking down at me proud of the man I am and the father that I am and the husband that I am. So
0: when I hear you say, because you said my dad, and, and I think it just kind of slipped out, my dad was a provider. Is that how you look at him? Yes. Like as a provider? I mean, he's still to this day, is that how you look?
1: Yeah, well, not even not even today because like I have I haven't not talked to my dad in years. I mean, after my mom's suicide that he was involved with, you know, I just, it's hard for me to look at him as, even as a person, he's just, some guy that exists you know I mean he was around my entire life but you know he drove my mother to the to a point to where she felt like she was no longer you know able to live on this earth and he you know pretty much forced her to kill herself because of his treatment of her you know so it's hard for me to look at this man and see him as anything other than a monster just because you know you forced the the greatest woman I've ever known that loved me more than anybody you forced her to make her feel like she was worthless you know so and, you know, I have two kids and my kids know they got a granddaddy, but they don't know who he is. And I'm like, how can I let you see your grandkids when you haven't even acknowledged your part in not my mother's death? You haven't acknowledged anything. If anything, I had a bad, almost had a mental breakdown one night when I first talked to him for the first time. It was like eight years after my mom's suicide. And he, he He's very stern, you know, very, you know, he, he don't, there's no giving this man. Like he is, when he's setting his ways, he is setting his ways. And he told me. You need to forgive yourself and move on, boy. You know, I cussed my father out on that phone, something awful, you know, and that's something I was brought up to never do. You know, the Bible says, you know, children obey thy mother and father, you know, respect your mother and father. And I just didn't see him as that, you know, and I just remember I hung up the phone and man, I was just for days. I was just in this fog, and this haze because this is the man that brought me into the world. You know, you don't expect your father to look at the worst moment in your life and tell you you need to forgive yourself and move on. I'm like that was your wife, that was those were your actions that led her to put the gun to her head and pull the trigger, you know. But you're putting it on me, and so you know I uh, I forgave him and we had bits and uh, small conversations. He would text me and it'd be real real small. You know, I was on Dave Ramsey the Dave Ramsey show because I did my debt free scream, you know. And he was like, "Hey son, I'm proud of you. You did good." You know, we talk talk, but. As soon as I try to bring up my mother, he don't want to talk about it. It's it's almost to him like she never existed. And I'm like, until we can talk about that and get past that, there ain't nothing here for us, man. It's the same with my grandparents. I started talking to my grandparents, my dad's parents, and, man, we talked about a lot of stuff except that. And when I brought up my mother, my grandma said, well, babe, we just need to move on. We just got to go on with life. I'm like, y'all saying go on with life like this woman was never here like your son did not put her in a position to make her feel worthless and kill herself. So, you know, I, I had to cut the cancer out of my life because we're family, we're blood, but until you can acknowledge my mother's presence and acknowledge what happened, there's nothing for us to talk about. Cause I've moved on my life, you know, but I still have scars. I still feel the hurt. I mean, I still smell my mom's blood 12 years later. I still see her laying in that room in the back of the hospital under that light under that white blanket. And the nurse pulling back that blanket is showing me my mother's head with the bullet hole in it and the e- exit wound coming out the eye and the dry blood in her hair you know i still remember that and until my family can talk about that with me there's nothing to talk about you know because something happened but there's this thing and, and and i'll say black families but i mean that's any family man Dude, that's almost any family. every family's got dirt that they just don't want to talk about and bring up but for me i was just like you know what till we can talk about this y'all there's nothing here we share we share blood and we share a last name but that's it
0: two other questions before we move on one are there people that are past redemption and and i pose that question to you because of how you live your life now what you base your life in but are there people past redemption
1: are they wait, you say? are they past like they can't be redeemed
0: they can't be redeemed. Like it just, no matter what they do, it's never gonna. <clears throat> no. And I'm talking, I'm talking on a on a human level. So there is a thing that your dad could do, and it would make. I won't say everything better because, of course, it would make everything better. But you could have a relationship.
1: Absolutely, and, and the same with my sister. The same with her. You know, she took told me I didn't deserve anything. You know, and took all the money, two hundred sixty five thousand dollars, and stole my mom's ashes. You know, and. I haven't talked to her not a lick in 12 years. yo. So man, I don't believe that there's no such thing as nobody's past redemption, because if that was the case, the Lord knows I've done my fair share to hurt people. Uh, you know, I've done I've done stupid things. I'm on my third wife. I'm sure if you talk to any of my other two wives, they'll tell you Dex is a horrible person, you know, and I take up for that in the book and say, you know, I have made my fair share of mistakes. So if anybody's not there's no one that's able to be redeemed, I can, I'm not able to be redeemed. So there's I'm not going to sit here and say nobody's past it. You know, but I have a bar in a st- certain standard that's set in my life. Man, if I'm wrong and I hurt somebody, no matter what it is, and they tell me that I hurt them, even though I might not agree, if I see that what I did hurt that person, I will tell them I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you because I know what it's like to be hurt. I know what it's like to be the person on the ground getting kicked around. You know, that's what kind of led me to law enforcement, man, was just I know what it's like to be bullied. I know what it's like to be, you know, to be to be too afraid to stand up for yourself. And so, no, I just don't believe in that nobody's, Redeemable. I mean, we are all humans. And we all have some sort of value. You know, our value might be different to other people, but we all have value. My sister, say, so I don't. I've not talked to her. I know she's got a kid now, but I. She's st- she talks shit about me on the on her uh, on her little show she does on YouTube. But you know what? I you know what. I don't have any ill will towards her because I look at the life that I'm living, and I live a good life.
0: It's so funny that you went right into that because she was the next question. You did a lot for her growing up, and then everything just kind of went off the rails. You found out that she knew about your uh, mom and, and stuff that she was battling, stuff that she had talked about, and she never mentioned it to you. The stuff that you mentioned after the death and after the funeral and all these kind of things. I, I want to know what made that switch happen, because as far as I can tell in the book, you got along relatively well younger, you you helped take care of her when things were tough
1: and where was that switch no we never we were never I mean super close you know but we could always tolerate each other and work together you know but for me I think it was the switch was my second wife my family did not like her you know and I made the choice I was like well y'all don't love her y'all don't love me you know so it was kind of like America right now you know where it's we got the line divided down the street, you know, the down the middle of the country. Are you on the left or are you on the right? Well, if you're with them people, you're not with me, we can't talk, you know? And that's kind of what my life was. Yo, know, where I drew this line, I was like, well, if you don't love my wife, you don't love me. And so I made the choice, you know, and that crushed my mother. Man, I crushed my mother's soul and that was never my intention, you know? But I, you know, I, I wanted to make a new life for myself after the army. You know, I, I was trying to figure out who I was and you know figure out a new path and a new purpose you know and i found my wife and i'll in my mind i'm like this is a good thing but of course you know mothers have this intuition where they see things that we don't see i fell in love with the big button to smile you know and i paid for it dearly but you know my mom she always told me she was like you're gonna you know you're gonna rule the day that you marry that girl and my mother was right you know but my my sister sided with my mother and because of that you know we just we were at odds and now that i go back to think about it i mean i've my sisters talked to my auntie and said that my auntie told me she was like your sister's mad and she says that you know what you did and I'm sitting there for years I'm like I know what I did like what the hell did I do what and I mean I thought about it for years and what I've come to the conclusion is I think the major switch was at 26 years old in my police uniform I made the call to take my mother off life support because my mother always told me that if anything happened to her hey don't leave me on life support Dexter. Don't leave me like this. I don't want people looking at me. Just let me go. And that day on August 29th, 2010, when I got that call in my police uniform working a detail, I was not ready that day to be the one to take my mother off life support because who goes to work thinking, man, today is going to be the day I'm going to get a call from a police department saying that my mother's been shot and is in a hospital bed. And I'm going to have to make this life or death call i i was not prepared for it only thing i knew was those conversations that my mother and i had where she told me repeatedly don't leave me here like this it didn't cross my mind to call my sister and say "Internet, mom's online support i don't know what to do you know all i kept hearing is my mother's words in my head don't leave me here like this let me go just let me go you know and i think she's upset that i didn't keep her online support for a while and let people come and say their final goodbyes you know but If she's holding that against me, she's got to understand I was in the moment too. And there was nobody in this moment with me. It was just me by myself. Now I've been to Iraq and Iraq was tough, but my God, seeing your mother laying in a hospital bed with brown paper bags on her hands to preserve evidence. All these people are asking you questions. Police chiefs are calling you. Police lieutenants are calling you asking questions. You know, and then I remember the social worker asked me if my mom had any issues with suicide or depression i'm like wow, she would never do that man so in my mind somebody killed my mother you know so it was just one of those things where i was just wasn't that i wasn't prepared that day and maybe you know what maybe i did make the wrong choice in my heart i know i didn't in my heart i know i did right because i did what my mother asked me to do but maybe i made the wrong choice for my family because i didn't give them that time to get there but you know when i was in that moment man it was a small moment in a in a dark place and I didn't know what to do. I just did what my mother told me.
0: We're going to come back to your sister in a little bit when when we get to after that. I want to kind of digress and go back a little bit into the military because I want to talk about some of the stuff that went into the depression. Because we've talked about, I mean, we've kind of hit all over the place with the wives and things like that. But joining the military, you had seen growing up, that was, I mean, you said it, it was a utopia, which... I was in the military. I don't know if I would ever describe it as a utopia, uh, maybe from the standpoint of a dependent or a child or something like that, yes. but, <laughs> but, but never in the military as a utopia, but that's all you knew growing up, uh, growing up. You had seen some guys when you were in high school and, and we're going to bring them up in a minute that had joined the Marines and different stuff like that. But you decided that was what you were going to do. Uh, when you join, you go to the 10th mountain, you're very, um, very happy. I want to talk quickly, uh, about, and, and the reason I want to talk quickly about it, cause I think it's a small part to the story, but I think it lends later on. Um, as you're joining, you're going through basic and everything like that. When you're done, you get married to your first wife, correct? Correct. You know, that more than likely you're going to go to the middle East. Was that a decision based on I'm gonna to go to the Middle East. I need to make sure people are taken care of back here. Or was it based on? I think I'm gonna be with this girl for the rest of my life, and it's young puppy love. Or was it a kind of combination of the two?
1: It was young puppy love, man. You no, know, that was honestly that was my first real girlfriend. And when I tell you she was a banger in high school, man, she was a banger. You know, that was that was my first everything, you know. So I was just head over heels with her. And I was like, man, I am not letting this go. Because most of my life, like I say I grew up dark skinned. Ooh, he ugly, he dark skinned, you know? And now that I found somebody that's gorgeous as hers, you're like, this chick's way out of my league, man. I better wife her up real quick, you know? So it was one of those, a lot of people aren't, are not afraid to miss stuff, but I was afraid of always being alone that nobody, who else is gonna love me? You know, so me, I fall in love and attached real quick because it was like, man, if this go away, who else is gonna want me, you know? And so it was <laughs> that's literally what it is, man. A lot of people aren't gonna admit to that, but I will admit to that. Like I said, I'm an open book. I don't care. But you know, that's what it was, that insecurity.
0: Let, let me ask you though, because we were both young when when we joined and we were first in the military. I, I, I wanna understand though, when you say that, you don't wanna let her go. But it's not really the it's not really the dream that you sent out to be in this. It's, it's hard to do, especially being deployed, especially in the job that you're in. Um, How do you get through that as a young, a guy as you were uh, and everything going on. And the reason I bring that up is because I noticed in the book, every time you call back home, well, not every time, but a lot, when you call back (coughs) home, you're getting, whether you're talking to your mom or your wife, people died, people you knew died this guy died, this guy died, this guy died. So you're hearing constant bad things. You're not even really getting to appreciate the relationship that you have with this wife because it's nothing but bad news around everything. So how do you fight through that as a young guy, as being married as young as you are, and then for the reasons that you said you got married?
1: You know, I don't think that's hard to answer, you know, because when you're young, you know, the world is, you know, magical and, everything's possible when you're young you know And for me it was just there's a part i put in my book where i said you know it was the the night before we before i deployed you know we were she, she and i were just sitting there laying in bed i just remember her laying on me her long hair and that smell you know and i was like man we're gonna be together forever no matter what and not even war in my mind and in my heart could tear us apart you know and for me that was the love, I thought our love was that strong. You know, I, there was nothing in the world that could separate us. But that's because I didn't know war. I knew war from TV. I knew war from video games. You know, I knew war from the news. You know, my dad didn't get to go to the Gulf War, you know, so I did not get that experience of having a parent that was deployed to a combat zone. You know, but it was a quick reality check when I called home to her and she told me that, hey, Deshaun Ote died, you know, and we were getting ready to cross the Burma Iraq, you know, Deshaun, I was best friends with his brothers, you know, and I remember seeing him in his Marine Corps camis at school, you know, recruiting after he got through a boot camp, you know, just full life, man, just, he was the definition of a Marine. And I remember calling home and she told me that, you know, and it's just my world crushing it, just reality hit at once, like, this is real, man, people I know and love are dying over here. This isn't a game and this isn't the whole, you know, when you go to the range and everybody's shooting up targets like, yeah, yeah, man, we're going to go fuck these guys up. We're going to kill a bunch of insurgents, but we never account for the fact that they have guns and bullets and bombs, too. And Americans die and my friends died. And the army trains you for a lot of stuff, but the army does not train you how to deal with a lot of death. And you just kind of learn to find your way and you just kind of learn. And like I said, but the thing is, the way we learn is very unhealthy. You know, it's we like I said, we compartmentalize. We just sh- shove it away. And eventually you run out. You run out of places to shove stuff and it all comes out.
0: Going back to the wife, you say that it's all becoming real for you at that moment. It's becoming very real for her, too. Is that going to cause tension? Is that going to cause a friction between you two? Because I, I would think in reading the book that she looks at it at that time as, well, shit, now I'm stuck. And this is what I'm going to have to deal with. This dude might not even come back home. So do you think that that starts that little form of friction right then?
1: You know, I, that's hard to say, you know, because she was very supportive, man. Like now that I go now that I'm older and I look back, I'm like, man, she was actually a good wife she was very supportive it's just man we're 19 years old and 19 man it's weird you know we got these new police officers on an apartment that are like 21 i'm looking at them, like damn these are babies man and then i think about myself like damn i was stupid when i was 19 you know (laughs) getting married and think we're gonna be together forever you know so it's i can't put that on her and say that she was a bad wife and that you know what she was thinking i don't know
0: yeah, no, oh, no. I, and and I would never go to say that. I, I I would I don't want you to take that as I was saying no, that. No. I I think my point of saying that was though was everyone's growing together. You're growing on two different sides of the world, and you're seeing different things. But you guys are kind of growing up together. Um, and and I think for young people, I've been married for 25 years. I got married when I was 21 in the military, uh, and I've been married the whole time since. My wife was yeah. in the military too. But now, like you said, looking back on it, wow. Like you're young and stupid and you do dumb things and you don't know how to even be a man yet. So when you throw all those things into the mix, I can only imagine what you're thinking going into battle. Now, as you cross the berm and you go over into it, you're already thinking about this. Now, you pointed out again, and it was interesting to me that you pointed it out. You talk about kind of revenge again but you talk about it for taking your friend away. Now you're looking at these insurgents and you're looking at the people that you're going against and you want revenge on them. I don't think that was by happenstance that that's the second time in the book.
1: No, no, it's definitely not. You know I mean? I want a revenge from the moment 9-11 happened, you know, when we found out what was going on, you know? So in from in my mind, I'm like, yo, I'm ready to go to Afghanistan. Let's go get some, you know? And, I end up going to Iraq and regardless of how everybody feels about Iraq, the war and the politics, you know, I don't let that affect me in my service because I know why I went to fight regardless if I was lied to when we got in there because politicians lied. My honored, my, my reason to go and fight was an honorable reason because my, my country was attacked and that I stand by that regardless of if the politicians were wrong or not, you know, but man, to see my country attacked, and just the just seeing the, the the towers fall. And I mean, you just start looking at people different. And you know, we always talk about how great America is and how unified we were after 9-11. We were very unified after 9-11. Unless you were Arab and Muslim. You know, you weren't you weren't necessarily in the picture, you know. So just I remember being in boot camp, you know, we sing the uh, the cadences, you know, up oh, jumps in an Iraqi. I got him with my knife. You know, we dehumanize dehumanize these people so we can easily go and kill them. And so, to me, every Iraqi I saw was an enemy. And I remember the first time I met an Iraqi up close, this guy was Falkley. He was the uh, the truck driver, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, so, <laughs> you know, so for me, I'm like, hey, Pitt, you're going to go escort this Iraqi truck driver around. He's going to drive you around the base, yo, and, like, you're going to make sure he doesn't do anything crazy. So, man, what Kim, Wasn't
0: he just going to, like, clean the toilets. or It was like a yeah. crazy thing that he was just going around yeah. and you're instantly on the defense.
1: Yeah, because in my mind, every Iraqi is the enemy. And dude, there was this one point, man. So I hop in the truck with him. You know, and where were you? Did you go to Iraq? No, no. So man, Iraq, I was on Camp Victory and Camp Victory is an enormous base, one of the biggest bases in Iraq. You know, so in my mind, I thought Camp Victory was all just one giant base. I did not realize that there were other bases within it. And man, I remember, I thought I was getting kidnapped at one point because we go, <laughs> we go out the ECP, entry control point, but it's just to another base. And I'm just looking at him like, hey, where are we going? Hey, hey, he's like, no, 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 mister, no, mister, we're just going to the other base to oh, man, dude, I locked, I loaded, I was ready to kill this guy because, you know, they teach us that these are the enemy, that's all you need to know. I didn't see these as people. You know, and I just remember I sat in that truck. My back was not against the seat. My back was against the door. I had my rifle at the low ready, just watching this, awkwardly watching this guy. And I can't even imagine now thinking to him what he must have been thinking like, yo, what the hell is wrong with this dude? I'm literally here to clean up you all shit, man. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you know, and this guy, he's just looking at me like this dude is crazy, you know, and he slowly starts talking to me. And I'm like, he's trying to deceive me. You know he's the enemy he's gonna if i blink he's gonna kill me he's the enemy because like i'm 19. we were attacked by you know muslims every muslim's an enemy you know and i didn't have the mental capability to think for myself and realize well you know maybe not all muslims are bad maybe this guy is just actually working to provide for his family you know so i'm just sitting there riding with this guy and he starts talking to me and i don't know what it Maybe the human side of me like it finally came on where he just started talking to me telling me about his family Then I opened up to him a little bit and we started talking and laughing. And I remember at one point I was like, man, I'm letting my guard down. You know, (laughs) know, the the training and the soldier in me was like, man, you're gonna gonna get caught off guard. You're going soft, man, you know? But man, by the time I was done with that, I realized that, like I said, the army didn't teach me this. I learned this myself, you know, that all these people here are not bad people. This guy's literally just here trying to make a living and take care of his family, you know, in this war-torn country. And I didn't realize that.
0: Fast forward that to being a cop. Did it pay off for you?
1: Yeah, oh man. Whew. You <laughs> know, when I became a, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I get man, I, as a rookie officer, man. You, you're thinking is very black and white. It is very black and white. And I think my it was the same when I became an officer. It was like, hey, this guy stole the a, so guess what? We're going to b. He's going to jail. Black and white. That's it. There's nothing else to think about. KRS law says this. You did it. These are the uh, you know the elements. You have met him. I'm locking your ass up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you know, so I remember like it was my first call, man. And we get a call. Thornton's on Bargetown Road. And Paco, my Puerto Rican FTO, you know, big dude, he was retired military, you know, and he was freaking uh, policing for like 20 plus years. It's like, this guy's stealing. He's like, hey, go detain him. So I just walk up and anxious and I'm just grabbing my cuffs like, oh, here we go. Here we go. And I go to put the cuffs on him. He's like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, he's going to jail. He stole. He was like, have you talked to this man? I'm like, no, he's got all this stuff hanging out of his pockets. He was like, still, he's a human being, man. Talk to the guy, figure out what's going on. Turns out, you know, the guy had kids at the hotel next door. Broke. He didn't have no money. It was Father's Day. He went over to still to, steal to feed his kids. And you no, know, in my mind, I'm like, this guy's lying. And Paco's like, stand right here for me. Paco's like, what room are you in, man? Paco goes over to the room, verifies the guys, kids are in there and they ain't got no food. Paco comes back, pulls out his wallet, throws some money down. This one's on me. Happy Father's Day. If I catch you again next time, I'm going to bust your ass. That was my first experience in policing, man, because I thought that it's just black and white. You know, there's good people and bad people. And you know what? Humans were a little bit more complicated than that, man.
0: It's hard, though, and I can say it from my point of view, too. It's hard when you talk about that kind of stuff where he goes next door and check. You hear the stories so many times. And I say this a lot. If you say you're not jaded, no matter what you've done in the police department, you're a liar. You're a liar. You are. Yeah. Because you're, you're constantly battling in your brain. Is it true? Is it not? Is this for real? Is it not? Is he on bad luck because of his decisions? Is he on bad luck? Because shit, just shit happens, and you're constantly on that back and forth. And the reason I ask you, did you learn that in the military, and did it pay for you um, coming over uh, into the into policing and and learning that? And and there were stuff that that was said in the past by people I know that that changed the way. I policed from the very beginning And this is people that were close to me uh, Statements that they would Make that stuck in my brain And made me change the way I did it And and as much as you May hate the statement you like the outcome That came from it so Going, yeah. back, into, going back into Iraq when we're Talking about it something that Popped out to me was uh, You were talking to a Buddy of yours and you had A uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Like a who would get a wounded in action first?
1: <laughs> yeah, my boy Randy.
0: <laughs> so I'm wondering, and I read this, and I thought, man, that's that's a weird thing to have. Do you think that set you down a course? Because there's so many things that happened before the injury. Do you think that kind of mentality put you down that path?
1: You know, I've always been told growing up, man, that the tongue has the power to speak life, death, and you can speak stuff into existence, you know. But, man, when we were doing that, you know, we were in Kuwait getting ready to cross the border. You know, we were getting our vehicles together. And I don't know if anybody's aware, but 2004, when we were in Iraq, we did not have the best equipment. We did not. And that's the Army. And the Army gets better equipment than Marines. You know, so it was rough going, man. We were, look, these Humvees had no hard armor i mean i remember one of them man had a giant hole in the floor you could drive down the road and you could put your hand through it and touch the road if you wanted to but to save your life like, hey here's two sandbags this will save you you know so <laughs> we're just i guess it was distress reaction you know like man dudes are getting blown up by these new weapons called ieds dudes are dying over here you know, it's like so what are my chances of surviving and how do you deal with that as a you know like 19 year old man Getting ready to go in a country where your friend just got killed, you know. So it's like, man, how do you deal with it? Comedy, just make jokes and laugh, you know. So I just remember him, man. We got into this competition, man. I was like, bro, I'm gonna get home way before you, homie. And I did, I did. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but it's so weird. So I remember one time we were out, and his vehicle rolled over. No, excuse me. No, it was uh, his vehicle got hit by the IED, by an ID. It was the first real ID we came in contact with. You know, it was on Route Force Green in Abu Ghraib. And I mean, I mean, I'm thinking as soon as the explosion went off, like, man, Randy's gone. He's dead. Oh, my God. You know, then the smoke clears and he's walking around. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that motherfucker, you ain't winning, bro. Hold up, man. <laughs> soon as I realized he was OK, you know, you go back to that joking part of it, man. But, you know, of course, you know, when it, in the moment you're thinking, oh, my God, my best friend just died in front of me. But you know, thank God he's alive and he survived. But, yeah, just, you know, it's that dark sense of humor. It's the same with the police department, man. Absolutely. It's a, that dark humor is how we make it through and survive. And I know people look at me sometimes at things. I say, I'm like, this dude, just you just really say that? Like, yeah, I did. I did. The more, the more inappropriate, the funnier. <laughs>
0: so is that the time when his IED got hit? Is that the time when you were, uh, you had made kind of your first mistake of, focusing on him instead of uh kind of outer perimeter uh do you know what story i'm talking about in the book yeah is that, yeah yeah is that it
1: no so no that was uh man, i think that was so i get him confused my god it's been freaking like 16 17 years but yeah that was the day uh, my buddy luke post got hit we were rolling in abu Ghraib. you know it was just one of the days it was real quiet you know just nothing's going on i mean we hadn't seen any action or combat i mean nothing you know just rolling around the iraqi countryside and then we get moved to abu Ghraib, where it's real you know the they hate us in abu Ghraib because of the abu Ghraib prison scandal that happened in april you know so but we're driving down the road and i just remember hearing that thunderous boom looking behind and seeing that fireball engulf the humvee behind me you know and i'm thinking oh my god they're all dead they're all dead you know and then the smoke clears and this is my first ever i'm not gonna say contact with the enemy but contact with the enemy weapon and i just remember i'm a machine gunner i'm supposed to cover my sector of fire in case people start shooting at us and i'm supposed to you know like sling some lead yo but there's nobody to shoot there's pandemonium people are running this crowded little area is just people are scattering and, and i don't know i remember this guy on this red vespa just, just zipping away just you know just getting away from the scene yo, and i'm like yo, that's probably the the guy that set the bomb off, yo, but I, I had no clue, and I didn't know what was going on, and I had drilled and trained for this over and over and over. This is what you do: contact left. All right, if contact left, man, we're gonna jump out, move to the right side of the Humvee, take cover over there, you know, just, and man, and I just froze as I saw my buddy Luke Post laying on the ground in a pool of blood, and I just remember crying out, "Luke, Luke," you know, and I was terrified, like my friend just died in front of me. And I remember Sergeant Cardenas like, "Pitts, pull fucking security. You can't help him from there." And that's when I realized like I was not up to par as a soldier because this was my first actual moment in combat with an enemy weapon, and I failed my mission. Thank God nobody got it and nobody else nobody died. Thank God you know nobody started shooting. But you know because I talked myself up like a lot of people do, man. We talk ourselves up to these situations where we're like, man, when this happens, I'm gonna do this and that. I'm gonna be a badass, I'm gonna be a hero. When my moment happened, I froze because I I was scared and I was nervous. And I'm focusing on my friend that's dying. Not my job as a soldier. You know, and I feel like a lot of so many guys, a lot of veterans and police officers embellish and how tough they are, and you know. But the truth is, man, nobody really knows how they're gonna react. Even with all my training, I still that did not react the proper way. But after we had our AAR, I realized the error in my ways and Sergeant Cardenas called me out in front of everybody. That's what a good leader is supposed to do. When you mess up, guess what? You get your ass chewed and handed to you. When you do right, you get praise. I messed up that day. You know, he told me, he's like, dude, you need to focus on your job. We are depending on you on that 240 machine gun. We need you. you know, and I remember hearing that, that we need you. My brothers need me. So the second time was, I guess, was uh, when my buddy Randy got blown up. And that's when I realized, like, man, all right, Randy's vehicle's hit. Put one in the chamber and start scanning my sector of fire. Of course, in the back of my mind, I'm praying, like, man, let them be okay, God. Let him be okay. But also give me somebody to shoot in the face right now because these bastards just hit us again. And there was nobody to shoot because, you know, the Iraqis, they knew they couldn't stand up with us toe to toe, you know. So I just scanned my sector of fire for... I don't know how long we stood there, you know, it seemed like forever you know, until we, you know, got the vehicle hooked up and rolled it out of the way and got out of the kill zone, you know, and got back to base. You know, it's just and that's when I realized, all right, I'm ready to do this job now for real. I'm ready to be a soldier. Like I was ready to go that second time. First time I failed, I was like, I am not failing my brothers a second time.
0: Talking about good leadership, I want to talk about Staff Sergeant Linder. it it's crazy to hear in the book when you talk about this guy because there is obviously an instant animosity between you two obviously things happen uh you have good leadership there but i think it's proper to talk about this guy where we're at right now because of something you say later on in the book uh let's talk about sergeant lender staff sergeant lender what kind of problems you guys had with each other and um after we'll do the injury and then what happens with you and staff sergeant lender after your injury
1: gotcha yeah so man he was my uh staff sergeant when i when i first got to ford drum you know he was not there he was on leave or some sort of training you know and i mean i remember the first time i met him me and my boy cox my battle buddy you know, he calls us downstairs he'll bring all your gear he just walks up to us salty or you know, just takes our canteens and just pulls them out and just flings them. i'm like like, what the, f- <laughs> Yo, what, what just happened? You know, it just didn't explain to us. He's like, you're all, you're all fucked up pits, both you and Cox." you know? And I was just like, what did I do wrong? Like, so, like how do I make it right? You know? And just, and I, I tell people, I was not a PT stud. bro. I was not. Now, if you give me a rucksack, I can hump all day. You can load me up like a mule. I can walk fast forever. Hey, but when it came to running in the army, I am not your guy. And, and man, if you, if you were in the army, you know, you could be the biggest shitbag in the company. You could do cocaine on the weekends and get found in a rental car with a bunch of dead prostitutes in the back. But if you can run a perfect two mile run and you're a PT stud, they will give you grace. And I was not that guy. I could not run. So I developed this reputation of being a piece of shit, you know, and I knew everything. I knew my weapon systems. I knew my general orders. I knew the, FM, you know, the, the infantry Bible, the FM 7 you know, 8. I knew my stuff, yo, know, but I just, could not get the running part down yo so i was automatically a piece of shit and i guess he just looked at me as i was not a good soldier you know and i mean i was 19 i whined and i cried and i complained all the time like oh they're you know these guys are being too hard on me and i was just miserable man miserable that's why i have a chapter in my book called not so golden dragon because we were the golden dragons and i was like i did not feel golden i was like man i'm always the dude in the back of the run like damn And I'm trying my ass off the run, and I just could not get that running part down. Everything else, I was Gucci. I could outshoot my gunner on the gun range. But that running, man, and just, we just had that animosity, man. He just treated me different than everybody. And I guess because I wasn't making that standard in his mind, you know? So, I mean, we just, I mean, I pulled out my old diary from Iraq, and when we were in Kuwait and I remember reading this excerpt about all,
0: all I see in my head when you say that is, is you sitting on your bed with your legs crossed in the back, like dear
1: diary. <laughs> Let me tell you about this motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I, because I, I remember I just put in there, I was like, why do you treat me so different than everybody else? You know? <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, I want to say, you know, that, I don't know what it was. You know, he just, we just didn't That vibe, just did not click, but it's so weird because, you know, I put the book out. I changed his name in it, of course, but I actually got a friend request from him on so on Facebook, like a couple weeks ago, super odd. I mean, he's not said anything to me yet. I'm not saying anything to him. We're in a lot of the same groups, you know, but we've not said anything, you know, because I, I know that that awkwardness is still there, you know, so it's eventually, we're going to have a conversation. Grown.
0: Maybe he's grown too.
1: I, I would hope so. I've grown, you know, but man, yeah, I mean, he just, I just man. so there was one time, you know, and the biggest thing for me was with him was, it was the, uh, the hypocrisy, man. I don't like hypocrites. And I remember one time, you know, it was all, a lot of soldiers were losing their eyesight from IEDs, from shrapnel. And I just remember they brought us these bogey ESS goggles. And they are like, Hey, anytime we go outside the wire, you need to put on your goggles. And I'm like, Okay, cool. So I remember we're out riding in Abu Ghraib, and I'm looking at something in the distance, and I'm trying to figure out what the hell I'm looking at. I can't tell. So I take off my shaded ESS goggles, and I'm peering off into the distance, and I just hear Sergeant Limerick, "Pitts, put your fucking goggles back on. And I'm like, Sergeant, I'm looking at something. Pet, I just gave you order. Put your fucking goggles back on. Roger, Sergeant. Then, then here we go. When I give you order, you do what I tell you to do. You know, and I'm just like, man, and as he's telling me this. He ain't got his damn goggles on. You know, I'm just looking at him like, bro, really? You really going to like, you're going to fry me for the same thing that you're doing now? Like at least be fair about it. At least call yourself out. If you're going to call me, at least be doing the right thing yourself. You know, that's what really set me off, you know? And I remember one time we were at a, like setting up a little entry control point. And man, I remember he pointed his rifle at his best friend, another staff sergeant. And he pulled the trigger and it said, click. You Know he had took the right, took the magazine out, ejected the round, you know, put send the chamber back forward, and there was no round in it, so it just went click. And I just remember the other staff sergeant was like, Yo, what the hell, man? And I'm watching this, like, bro, that is a major, major violation. But because it's between two staff, staff sergeants that are friends, it's cool. I'm like, Man, if I had done that, man, they would have had me on a plane back to Leavenworth, you know. And so, I just the hypocrisy, man, it just got to me. And just as y'all see with my book, you know, like I can take a lot of shit for a lot of long time, but eventually once I get back into a corner, I fight back and I, I snap and it happened with him that day, uh, the goggle incident, you know, he's like, you know, meet me at the, uh, <laughs> we got back from patrol. He's like, meet me at my room as soon as we're done from patrol. So I go meet him at his room. He tells me, you know what you're going to do? You're gonna wear your goggles around post everywhere you go. You're gonna be in full battle rattle pits. I don't care where you are. If you're taking a shit, you're wearing your goggles. You know. And I was just like, Roger that, Sergeant. And I just had it at that moment. He went into his room, and just that rage inside of me, man, just that uncontrolled rage. I just went black. You know, just my vision. And, and I just remember running up to that door, banging on that door, like, "Come out of here, you motherfucker! Let's fight." Cause I remember all the stories back in the day. They're like, "Yo, if you got a problem with somebody in the army, no matter rank, you could take it to the woodline. We'll take off the rank, yo. We'll handle this like men. We'll solve it, and we'll go on from there." And that's what I wanted to do. Cause I just I was tired of the way he treated me. And so I'm just knocking on his door, banging on his door, threatening him. I'm gonna kick the shit out of you, motherfucker! Come out here now, you know? And just banging on this door, and he never came out. And my squad, man, they just pulled me down. Like, Pitts, calm down, man. It's not worth it. Let it go. I'm like, no, I'm tired of this shit, man. I'm sick of this shit. And so, you know, they pull me down. They calm me down, you know, and then this is why I love the Army. You know, all my buddies, met. nobody does anything alone. Everyone suffers together. And they told me, he was like, man, my squad or my uh, team leader was like, look, if it make you feel better, we will all wear our goggles everywhere we go. You know, we just came from patrol and we were like, man, let's go to the DFAC. Let's get something to eat. So we all put on full battle rattle, and we're walking to the chow hall, looking like a bunch of dorks, full battle rattle into the chow hall, you know, ordering our food, going down the line, you know, and you know we're sitting there eating eating our dinner with our helmets on and and our ESS goggles, looking like idiots, and then you know, we all just start laughing, man, and the next, you know everything's all right, you know it's just like, I'm with my boys, like, you know what the hell with it, man?" <laughs> and one of them was just like pits. I didn't know you had that in you, man. Like I did not know you could get that aggressive because I'm by nature younger. I'm just not a truly aggressive person, you know, just never been me. But like I, said, I get back into a corner, man, and I snap.
0: Let me play devil's advocate on that. <clears throat> Are you in the wrong? For. With what happened with him? I'm I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm not was saying I you're r- wrong.
1: If we're going by military standard, yes. Yes, you don't. Yes, I was cuz I was E3, he was E6. Yes, absolutely. I was in the wrong. But as a man, <laughs> so
0: so let me ask you and I ask you that to ask you this. So you you say you're in the wrong. Do we go back to that thing where you're a young, because I think we've all done it. We've all said stuff we're not supposed to say to, to bosses in the military. And uh, I would even go so far as to say maybe stuff's been said to bosses in law enforcement. Um, and yeah. and after you do it, immediately when it's done, you're like, uh-oh, I shouldn't have done that. Was that the way it was with you? Were you walking away from it going, ah.
1: No. No, I, I, I was convicted in that moment. You know, just so
0: you were ready to take whatever came behind. Yeah, you.
1: yeah. I was ready to go to Leavenworth, man. I was ready to face. <laughs> I was ready to face whatever they're going to send at me, whatever punishment. At that point, it would have been worth it just because I was so mad. I was just tired of being treated like the black stepchild, and literally, I was like, there was. A, <laughs> I was the only black guy on the freaking squad. You know, heck, like the only two in the platoon, like maybe four or five in the whole company. You know, so. And that'd be the easy route for me to go as you know but see that wasn't even my thought that it was I was black because that was just not my upbringing
0: that's why I brought him up because I want to get to that let's talk about the injury they tell you always pay attention to your spidey sense out here and it was going off that night now I have to understand because the way you write it in the book I I had to read it like three times because I thought I read it wrong When you're explaining that you have you think something's off that night, there's something you shouldn't be there. You're explaining that. Am I am I giving it proper credit? I
1: I will say from the moment I woke up that day, there was something in the atmosphere from the moment I stepped out of my room and put on my gear and we got in that vehicle. I felt somebody or something was trailing me and watching me. You know, I just I could feel something negative and sinister in the air.
0: OK, so walk us through that, because the reason I brought up Staff Sergeant Linder was not to necessarily get into that story, because I want I I, I wanted to explain the relationship between you two. But we're getting ready to get into where you kind of change your thinking in life about who's right, who's wrong. And, and I want to get into that. But first, we got to explain this.
1: Yeah. So, you know, we were in Abu Ghraib. We have been patrolling this area west of you know Baghdad and Abu Ghraib for maybe a couple of weeks, you know. But it's all by the old milk factory. If you talk to anybody that's been in Iraq and Abu Ghraib, they know about the milk factory. That place was hell, you know, you know. so for we're just out that day, and I remember we stopped at a forward operating base where one of our platoon was, and we were just chatting with these guys, dropping them off some gear, some equipment, and some water and some bullets, you know, and. and And I was just sitting there talking to my buddies, you know, it was just something weird that day. And we had been out in the same sector, riding the same route and never really changed anything up. So we go to the side of the road off of Route Huskies and we're sitting up in front of this house. So what we would used to do to cover uh, more area, we would park two Humvees at one spot. We parked ours in front of this Iraqi guy's house. Then we would send to our other two Humvees down the road maybe a half a click you know maybe a click to cover that intersection to where insurgents could not get in between those vehicles and plant a bomb you know so we would cover those areas you know. so we had been to the same spot like three days in a row and the first two times we were there this like nice Iraqi guy with his family and his daughters would come out you know they offer us chai tea you know, I me mean? still sinister, like, man, this dude about to poison us and try to kill us, y'all. I ain't drinking that shit.
0: <laughs> he probably knew the guy that cleaned the toilets.
1: You know <laughs> Spockley's cousin, man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's just they were there laughing and joking, you know, then all of a sudden we go back night three, like the house is dark, like there's nobody there. You know, I'm just like, like, where'd they go all of a sudden? Like, man, were they going on? the vac- vacation to Fallujah or something? Like where are they at, you know, they're gone. And I'm just like, something's not right, you know? And we're sitting there and the sun's starting to go down, you know, and where we're at, we're like across the street from a a slum, man, a ghetto, you know, and just behind us is this house and just desert and palm trees. you know. And I'm just like, Yo, something's not right, man. And I'm sitting there and I'm just like, LT, I got a bad feeling about this man. And, you know, he tells me like, Pitts, you've been in the turd all day, brother. Like, listen, you need to chill out and relax. I think you need to get some rest. And I was like, I hear you, sir, but I don't. I just can't shake this feeling, man. I feel like somebody's watching us. You know, he's like, man, just get some rest. So you know, I hop out of the turret, and before I go to the driver's seat, I'm like, man, I'm going to go take a piss real quick. And I've been up here all day, so I'm taking a piss, and I'm seeing these cars pass me, and I just get this bone-chilling feeling, and the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And I know a hundred percent for sure and for certain my sixth sense was like yo dude there's somebody out here watching us right now i can't explain it i don't know what it was but i could feel their eyes watching me and so i walk i go back you know to the humvee and you know i got my hand on my on my uh, rifle and my fingers on the selector switch because i'm just like man it's about to go down and i talk to my buddies you know they're outside on the side of the humvee on the driver's side of the humvee smoking and joking you know pints lighting a cigarette and we're just like all chatting you know i'm like man i got a bad feeling man do y'all like do y'all feel this like vibe that's going on now like something's not right and one of them was like you know it is kind of weird today like homeboy's not here with his family he's just gone you know so you know it's just like man you know what do we do you know our orders are to sit here you know? so all right man plank goes goes and climbs in the turret you know, then i go and sit in the driver's seat you know my lieutenant is a. Uh, sitting in the passenger seat in the TC spy, and he's messing with the radio, the Blue Force tracker, and trying to do whatever he's he's doing. And I could tell he's frustrated. I'm like, sir, I got to say it again, man. Like, I just don't feel right about being here. And that's when he just kind of had He was like, damn it, Pitts. Like, we're fine. I told you, we're good. We checked the area before we came here, and we did. Before we parked in anywhere, we would always get a squad out, and they would clear that area to make sure nobody had buried anything. We would make sure there were no tracks. I mean, we did everything right. Man, so he tried to put this confidence in me, but I just had no confidence that night in being there. Like something was not right. And so the next thing you know, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to lay my head back and I'm going to take a nap. You know, my homeboy's up in the turret. I'm going to get some rest. You know, and I remember taking my helmet off and laying my head back. And it's kind of weird how it happened, you know, so I kind of almost remembered in two parts, but I only told the first part. In the book because i didn't know how to merge both of those together so how i initially remember it was waking up inside the humvee and it was weird it was like an outer body experience you know i was floating above my body inside the humvee and i was just looking at down at myself in the seat and i just remember yelling to myself dex wake up wake up man you're gonna move you're gonna die you gotta get up you gotta move and, and it was just like, I don't know where I was, but it was so serene and it was peaceful and it was quiet. You know, it was just, and, and then all of a sudden it was just like snap, you know, and I was back in my body. And I remember like turning my head side to side and moaning and groaning. And then I just hear somebody yelling, pits, pits, pits. And I'm just like, man, who in the hell is yelling at me? Like, what is going on? It's ringing in my ears. And why am I hurting so bad? And I remember I tried to move and it was like, my body was way down and I just couldn't move. And then I just remember seeing like lights and specks of dirt in the Humvee and like particles of dirt. yo. And I'm just like, what the heck is going on? then I just look over and I see my lieutenant's face. And then it's like everything comes to because everything had been moving like a Hollywood movie, slow motion. You know, and then next thing you know, I just remember like, oh, my God, this hurts so bad. And I don't know what the heck is going on. And I just remember my lieutenant's like, I'm going to get you out of here, man. I'm going to get you out of here so he just grabs me by my shoulders and my door is completely wrecked we had parked on top of two one five shells And they were literally sitting up under my ass and literally where we were standing talking moments before the bomb went off we were standing directly on top of this giant bomb and to this day I don't know what homeboy was doing like maybe he was sleep on his watch maybe he was waiting for a different moment hey I don't know maybe they got to their spot you know but They could have killed all of us in an instant. We would have never known, you know, it's just all of a sudden, you know, I'm just sitting here and my lieutenant pulls me out, man, through the passenger side. And I remember my body hit the ground with a thud and I'm just like, oh my God, it hurts so bad. And the one thing I remember was how cold the ground was. And that's like the ground was just like zapping all the heat from my body. My body's in absolute pain. The worst pain I've ever felt in my life, man. It was just, I'm looking at the stars. I don't know what's happened to me but i just know i'm about to die you know this is it and i'm just i'm 19 years old i'm in iraq I'm, I'm about to take my last breaths on earth man and in my mind i start thinking this not like this man i'm supposed to be a hero i'm supposed to you know i'm supposed to live this wonderful life and do all these wonderful things and i'm getting ready to be with all the guys that i just lost like and i didn't even get to fight back you know and so i'm just sitting there waiting for death to come And I tell people it's so weird. Like I was terrified to die. but I was also ready to die because I wanted the pain to stop because the pain was so bad. You know, I just want the pain to go away at that point. And I was just like, man, just take me, you know, but man, my, my buddy started working on me and come to realize, you know, my left arm had been completely demolished and shattered. You know, my left arm is completely jacked, man. And i like i just remember the blood the taste in my mouth of blood and dirt mixed together you know just my teeth were jagging a shark because half of my molars had gotten blown out you know and just just the ringing in my head i mean and i remember my buddies like they started putting the split on me my doc you know and i'm just like screaming to the top of my lungs you know just like oh my god it's paying somebody to make a stop and so they just put you no know, started bandaging me up And I'm a big boy at this point. So they were like, dude, we need your help, Pitts. We need you to get up off the ground. We need you to dig down deep and help us. And I just remember hearing them say, we need you, that we, we need you. And I just always told myself I would never fail these dudes again. And I dug down with everything in me as they grabbed me by my good arm. And they lifted me off that ground. And that's when I decided I'm going to live and I'm going to fight back. And I remember they picked me up, and I screamed out horribly as they picked me up. But my training came back, yo, and I was like, hey, where's my freaking rifle, man? Somebody give me my damn rifle right now. Because that is one thing you learn in boot camp is you don't go anywhere without your rifle. Your rifle is an extension of you. You are worthless as a soldier without your rifle, especially as a grunt. Your rifle is everything. And, and I didn't know where my rifle was, yo. So I'm like, man, give me my rifle. And then I remember somebody saying, man, somebody's already secured it. And I heard that, but I was like, I still want my rifle because I'm ready to start shooting if need be, you know. But so they get me in the Humvee and then they transport me to the cache. I think it was the 91st cache in a biop at the time. And I still don't know to this day who was driving the Humvee. But that bastard, I swear, hit every damn hole and pothole on that road back to the hospital, man. I mean, I'm sitting in there dying, just crying and just. Uh, saying the Lord's prayer over and over again. Like our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, <laughs> thy kingdom come. And it hit a bump, ah, you know, and just, man, we finally get to the cash. And I mean, it was so weird, you know, cause we had just been there like Thanksgiving day. You know, we had a, we got blown up real bad on Thanksgiving day. You know, we just, we took our boys to that same cash, man. And I didn't know that, you know, a couple weeks later, I'd be right there on that gurney getting rolled in, you know, and I remember they gave me my first ever hit of morphine. My God, bro, I've never felt anything so wonderful in my life, man. (laughs) Never. In no
0: way is he condoning the use of morphine.
1: I am not condoning. No, not at all. No narcotics, people. But my God, man, it it was just, man. And that's when I realized, you know, I was going to live. I was going to not be okay, but I was going to survive. But that's when I also knew I had a long road ahead of me, brother.
0: I think there's one question that you screamed out that you left out of that entire story, and I was hoping you would get to it, but you were checking for certain body parts if they were still there.
1: Oh, oh yeah, everybody, everybody I known that's gotten hurt. The first concern was, well, death, like oh, dying. No, hey, dying, that's cool, but man, ain't no way I'm living without my nuts and my ball, you know, and my Johnson, bro. Ain't no way, you know. So I just remember, like, LT, LT. Please tell me my dick's still there please tell me my there. (laughs) and i just remember he grabbed reached down and grabbed a handful man was like you're good and i was like all right you know i can deal with whatever comes after this man (laughs) you know it's so weird everybody i know and talk to everybody says that's their first concern everybody
0: After all this happens, um, and I, I want to point out, you you talked about the medic that saved you, and I just want people to kind of keep that in the back of their head: the medic that that worked on you, and and the guys that got you to the to the hospital. Um, when it's all said and done, uh, you're on your way to Germany. You decide you're going to call Staff Sergeant Linder because he was on R and R, right? Yep. <laughs> uh, you're going to just tell him what happened, why you got that idea. I still can't comprehend in my mind why you would that, not to just let it you know disseminate down but you call him and something happens over the the phone
1: yeah so i, mean, I think we were in balad and you know i'm just going through my little phone book like calling my parents and friends i know like just so you know i got blown up i'm on my way to germany you know and i'm like man i know we got animosity and i know that he and i don't get along but i'm like in my mind i'm like I'm sure deep down this man cares about me and doesn't want me to die. You know, I know we got issues, but I know we ain't that bad. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to call him and tell him. So I pick up the phone, I call him, and he's like, hello. And I'm just like, Sarge, it's Pitts. Just want to let you know I just got blown up by an ID. I'm hurt pretty bad, but I'm going to survive. I'm on my way to Germany. And, you know, he's, uh, yeah, okay. Click and just when that happened you know, I was like this son of a bitch don't care if I live or die he does not care and man it, that then that that haunted me for years you know years you know and that and that was one of those places in my life and times where I was like man I hope this son of a bitch dies over here you know like is that revenge like you don't care about me well I don't care about you you know what I hope you meet your end over here too then you know, it's just so mad, just so hurt you know, that somebody couldn't not care for me that much. Like my life is in your hands, you know, like you're, you're supposed to be my leader. You're supposed to be the guy trying to make sure I get back home to my family. You know, but And then I tell you that I got hurt and your response is, yeah, okay. And you hang up the phone on me like, man, nothing like, hey, I'm sorry that happened to you. Well, you're going to be all right. No, we'll check on you. mean something, but I got nothing.
0: What else did you think was the reason why he didn't care? And I asked that because we're going to bring it back up in a little bit.
1: Well, in that time, a moment, I just thought it was because he did not like me as a person. It just, we just didn't get along, you know, but after I got out of the military, you know, I got, I started doing a little, got into acting. I was in a HBO documentary and with the uh, James Gandolfini from the Sopranos, you know? And, and so from that, I remember Tony Soprano was like, hey, man, how about, you know, you look into acting and I'm going to hook you up with some people. So I'm sitting at home and I get this call from Spike Lee. He's like, hey, I want you to come to Italy with me to shoot this World War II Buffalo Soldiers movie about the black Buffalo Soldiers unit in World War II. And I'm like, hell yeah, let's do it. So while I'm over there, if people don't know who Spike Lee is, man, phenomenal directors, made a lot of movies, but when it comes to politics and being black, Spike Lee is the blackest of the black When I say black, not skin color. I mean, my man is down with the struggle, black power fist. You know, if you ain't black, you know, if it ain't black, it ain't right. You know, and it's a very, very extreme point of view, you know, but so for me growing up, like I said, I was never, we never talked about color in my house. We never talked about black and white. It was just God, you know, right and wrong, you know, good character, good people. That's it. We never discussed what? politics.
0: I I have to cut you off because I want to bring this up because they kind of go together. I want to read something out of the book, okay? Yeah. You say, I know many will read this and stand in judgment of my mother and criticize her for the things she said to me and some of the things she did in reference to my skin. I understand how someone on the outside looking in can assume the worst about her after reading such things. But you all did not know Idella Pitts as I did. She did not do or say those things to hurt me or make me feel ashamed. She said and did those things to me out of her undying love for me and her desire to protect me so that I did not have to endure the pains that having dark skin in this life can bring. She was all too familiar with the pain and did not want me to become accustomed to it. Now, I think people need to understand that that's not just a statement out of here. Your mom took some extreme measures with you, especially about skin tone growing up, that I think people need to understand to put this in context with this story you're about to tell with Spike Lee.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we can even start with the kids on the bus. You know, so, black people making fun of other black people for being dark skinned. A lot of people don't realize where that comes from, but that comes from slavery. So, I tell people, yes, slavery's gone, slavery's over, yo, know, but the remnants of it are still here, especially within the black community. So where the slave master, I mean, if you take a slave plantation, you got the slave master, his wife and his kids and a couple workers, maybe like what five, what, five, 15, 20 people on a on a plantation. But you got 50, no, 100 slaves. You're outnumbered. You can't afford to let those slaves realize, yo, but we all black. There's more of us than them. We're going to get together. We're going to take over. You know, so. The slave masters knew that in order to keep that from happening, they had to divide the slaves somehow. And so what they would do is divide slaves, you no know, light skin versus dark skin. You know, it's all part of the, the uh, Willie Lynch letter. If anybody knows about the Willie Lynch letter, it talks about that. You know, you have to separate your slaves. You can't let them unite. You know, so the whole light skin versus dark skin thing, which a lot of people are not aware of that happens within the black community. Nobody ever talks about it. We only talk about racism when it comes to white versus black. But never light, black versus light-skinned black, you know? And so, me being picked on on the bus by those kids for being dark-skinned, that is all descendant of slavery to where light-skinned people think they were better than dark-skinned people, then, you know, you get the whole, well, oh, he's cute, but he's cute for a dark-skinned guy, or somebody tell me she's cute for a dark-skinned girl. Yo, It's just, that's all from slavery, man. And so, my mom growing up in mississippi had dark skin she learned how to bleach her skin over the years and i would be i was intrigued by my mom's photos because my mom when i knew her from my first memories you know, she was always of lighter skin you know, but i look at her pictures i'm like she was dark skin back in the day like how did she do that you know and my mom i guess when i started getting picked on on the bus by those kids her trauma you know we passed down trauma from ourselves to our children, yo. And she passed her trauma down to me by telling me, like, hey, if you bleach your skin you get lighter, your skin's gonna be, your life's gonna be a little better. You know, my mom would tell me, don't wear black. You're dark enough. You don't need to be darker. Damn, wearing black's gonna make your skin darker. And that's because my mom was trained to condition growing up as a dark skinned girl in Mississippi to hate herself for having dark skin because the light skinned girls were always treated better in the family. You know, light skinned people are always treated better, looked up, looked upon better. You know, so my mom started teaching me those things, you know, but unconsciously. And me, I didn't realize that was my mom's trauma teaching me that. I just thought that was my mother just trying to love me and trying to help me have a better life, you know. So for me, I didn't realize the trauma that slavery still has on people. People might not want to talk about it. You know, Republicans, conservatives, like, I'm a conservative guy, but. A lot of people don't want to hear this. I'm like, dude, there are still issues that linger today from it. You know, so for me, man, growing up in my household, it was never talked about. It was never all black this and that. It was just good people, bad people for the most part, you know. But man, when I got to Italy and I was around Spike Lee and his crew and I was around not just black people, but black excellence. And when you get out of the military and you are lost, you know, one of Maslow's hierarchies of needs is the need to belong. Man, we all need a tribe. We all need people. We need somebody. We were not created to be alone in this life at all, man. That's what the, when they when people go to jail in prison, they punish them. They separate them from everybody. They put them in solitary confinement. It is torture. And me, I was alone. So when I got with Spike Lee and those guys, I was in search of a new tribe after the military, and I found it with these guys in black extremism and black excellence. And that's when I started my journey to the extreme left of where, you know, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on us. These no crackers is out here you know, it's the white man, everything's the white man. Nothing's my fault, you know, man. And I remember telling these guys about how the black kids on the bus would make fun of me. And they told me brother, you have the skin color of Kings from Africa. The reason they're making fun of you is because of slavery. And this is not on you. You know, this is the evil white man's legacy and heritage that they have left, with, left you with, you know? And it just, I became intoxicated off of this black separatist, black power thing, man. And it was so powerful and it was so intoxicating, man. I mean, it felt so good to have my own tribe. You know and I mean? i When I say I went all in, I went all in. I did black studies. I mean, I studied black everything, you know, just because it was my first time in my life I was proud of something. You know i was proud to be black i wasn't just black i was you know i was proud to be black you know man and for me it all started to make sense the things in my life that i never had a, uh, i never had an answer for i started getting answers for the answer was slavery racism white people white supremacy and i started thinking back to my interactions in the army with staff sergeant Linder. You know, and it all made sense in that moment i was like he hates me because i'm black i'm a threat to him i'm a th- He's, you know, my blackness scares him, you know, and it's his white supremacy mindset. You know, it's the white man trying to keep a black man down. You know, so in my mind, that was why that man hated me. I had no proof that that man was racist, no proof at all. But in my mind, I told myself that's what it was because I needed an answer. And that's an easy answer to go to, unfortunately, for a lot of people, especially today. Man, if you're a black and you want to be a victim, you could play that victim card all day because, man, I'm the type of person that believes, you find whatever it is in life that you're looking for, and if you are looking for a reason to hate, you will find every reason. Me, I was looking for a reason to blame someone except myself, and I use my skin color as as that bar to where if I failed or if I did something wrong, it wasn't me, it was white people. It was racism. It was white supremacy. And I bought into all of it.
0: How do you go from the way your mom raised you and the way, I mean, we can include your dad into that, but how you were raised to that, I understand it's intoxicating, but it's a completely different mindset. How does it overtake you? And I want people to understand that because how it completely according to the book it overtook your life you say that you were afrocentristic and you uh or excuse me afrocentric and everything um was completely turned on its head with you
1: yeah yeah you know it just the power of loneliness is strong you know i don't think we i don't think we realize how strong loneliness is and you know and what's the word i'm looking for you know just insecurity man you know I wasn't secure in myself and you know and like I said with my with love in my life and girls I got you know I told you earlier where I was afraid of being alone and I would attach to anybody that would take me at that time I did and that's who I was as a person just very insecure and I had no army buddies around you know so I just the first group of people I came in contact with it was the Spike League, Spike Lee's camp you know and I just I dove in head first and I attached myself because you know, these people brought me in. They reaffirmed everything and nothing was my fault. Man, black is beautiful, brother. And they, they just took me in like family, man. And just, and it's so weird when I think about it because like, that's not how I was raised. It's not how I was raised. My family, you know, my mom and dad were still married, you know, but I was still a young man trying to find my way in life. You know, and I'm just like, man, who am I? I know who what? my parents think I am.
0: I say that because I'm trying to find out, like, how does your mom feel about that? You've got to have discussions with her. You
1: no, know, I never really talked to my mom in depth about it, you know. And the thing is, man, most of my family on my mom's side, they all probably would have felt a lot of the same way. I mean, I talked to my auntie a couple of weeks ago, you know. She was talking about, I forgot what we were talking about something about police. Well, like, yeah, you know how these white people are out here, baby. <laughs> you know, just real casual in it. But she's a... Black woman that was born in Mississippi in the 40s, you know, she's she's gonna have these extreme views, yo. And guess what? When you have those views, guess what? You pass them on to your kids. You know, you pass that trauma down, yo. So how I was, you know, like I didn't discuss it much with my family, yo, but I found myself more so agreeing with some of the stuff my aunties would say. And my mom never really got much into the conversation, yo, but she would say stuff now and then, and I'll be like, ah, yeah, no, I, I kind of understand that, you know. So, maybe I, mean, well, I said we never got into a deep discussion about it, but I did with my father, you know. And I said we never discussed politics. You know, and I remember I was in, I think African American history too. Man, we were di- diving into W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, and just man, we were going in, and I'm just learning all this. You know, I'm just talking to my father. Here I am, almost died for America, and I'm over here out in the yard working with my dad. You know, and he, I'm just talking like, man, do you believe like? <laughs> Believe the thing that this country has did to our people, like how evil this country is, Dad. Like just the oppression and just heaping all this crap upon the black community, man. And, and I remember my dad looked up at me like, like what the hell do you know about any of this oppression, racism, slavery? Yeah. I'm like, Dad, it's in the books. What do you know about this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know <and> he's <laughs> this is a black man from Mississippi? And, and he's and I didn't know, but you know, my dad was very very conservative, extremely Republican, never talked about it, yo, but man, we just started getting into this, the conversation and debate. You know, I mean, I remember I used to sit online and argue with people. I remember I had this one, this one line, I would always drop on people when they talk about the forefathers. I'm like, that's your forefathers. Yeah, your forefathers were hanging my forefathers from trees in this country. So I don't want to hear a damn thing you got to say about America. And this is coming from a guy that almost died for America. You know, It's so bizarre, but man, that is how easy it is to get taken and have your mind transformed, man, especially at a young age when you don't know who you are. You don't have a purpose in your life, man. You have to guard your life because people can come into your life and mold you exactly into who they want you to be. And you won't even know it. I didn't even know it. Had not a clue that it was happening because I was just happy to have a tribe. That I was a part of that was famous, you know, and just, yeah, man, I'm part of, you know, I'm part of 40 acres in a mule. You know, I always heard that growing up, but I never knew about what actually 40 acres in a mule was. You know, I mean, when I started working, uh, when I started acting and did the thing with Spike Lee, I always saw 40 acres in a mule and I didn't realize what it was. And then I started going to school, like, oh, that's what that is, you know, just it just I just dove headfirst into it, man. It's just it was you know, It's just hard for me to think of myself like that now because of how I am now. And I'm just like, damn, man, I was still stupid at like 22, 23, 24, 25.
0: So when you talk about that and, and you get so deep into it, one, do you regret it now? Do you regret it?
1: No, because I mean, the experience, because the way America is now I – mean, I have this belief that it is hard to argue with somebody and hard to debate somebody if they know what they're talking about. And so I feel like the best way to to argue or debate somebody is if I can argue your point for you. I know what you're going to say. I know all the tips. I know all the tricks. I already know. That's why with all the stuff going on in America and, you know, the the, America's races and, you know, evil. And I'm just like, bro, I've already been down this road. I know everything you're going to tell me because I've had all these thoughts. I've read all the books. I know about it all. So I'm glad I went through it and had the experience because I can see the bullshit coming before it gets to me. And I know what the goal is. The goal is to get an emotional response out of me. You know, the goal is to get me thinking like, man, no, man, maybe this country really is just a wholly racist country. But that's not the case because that was not the life I lived. I lived a good life, man. I never had, I've never seen the KKK burn across in my yard. My family members have my ancestors, but not me, man. I've been called uncle Tom, a sellout of cool, a coon, a coon ass nigga but more times than I've been called a nigga by some random white dude. You know, like, is there racism in America? Of course, There's always going to be the case, yo, but that is not the majority. That is not the norm. And you know what? That has not been my experience. But at the same time just because that has not been my experience does not mean that that has been some other black guy's experience in america that lives somewhere else you know so just because it hasn't happened to me doesn't mean that it's not happening to him and my view of the world is not the only view of the world just like his view of the world is not the only view either you know and it's just one of those things you know where we all have our view and we all want our view to be reinforced and that's why i say you can find whatever you're looking for Man, when I was in that time, bro, I could find anything to confirm my bias towards America, racism and slavery. Just get online and like, how evil is America? Man, you can find article after article after article pure, pure articles, articles from doctors about racism, yo. but if you go the opposite direction, why is America great? Man, you can find every article you want to support your argument. It's just a matter of what are you looking for.
0: So then how because you're talking a... You're talking straight and you're talking how things could come, but it's not that easy. So how do we get to that point to show people? Because the way I look at it, this and with the riots and everything that happened, this is tearing the country apart from the inside. Absolutely. More than it ever has before. So how do we get to that point to where we show that we've swung pretty far on the pendulum and we need to bring it back? And get a little centered. You no,
1: know, but there's one thing I tell a lot of new cats that come into police work. Yo, know, like, man, I don't tell new guys anything that are doing things wrong. I tell them, dude, I don't have to tell you because this job is going to teach you. You know, I came into police work with a one track mind. You know, like thinking this was going to be it, and this is how I'm going to be, and this is how I'm going to do it. Yo, know, but police work completely showed me a completely different side of life that I never knew existed. You know, and it just completely changed my perception, yo, because I'm, I'm, in my mind I'm like, yo, okay, we have white people in the world, in America, and black people. Alright, white people, you know, slavery, slavery's bad, white people are evil. I get to the hood. Like I said, I'm not from the hood. So I always find it funny, me as a young black rookie officer in the hood, I come up to some, you know, some young thug, hey yo, what's up, my nigga? Hey officer, you know how it is in the hood, bro? And I'm like, no sir, I don't. I am not from here. I am from <laughs> I'm from the country of Mississippi in the military. Hey, yo, but i hear all this talk about evil racist people yo but every scene i'm making in the hood is a young black man that has shot and killed another young black man you know i'm just like that's not good I'm like hey anybody see anything it's broad daylight you know, those cameras everywhere and somebody just shot this dude in the head 20 times yo and there's a block party going on you know there's tv cameras and i'm like hey anybody see anything nope we ain't see nothing man we ain't see nothing and then next thing you know the crowd turns on you yo and you're just like hey We're here to help. And they're like, man, fuck you. Fuck the police. Y'all killed that nigga. Y'all just glad another nigga's dead. And I'm just like, that's not what we're here for, you know? And man, I slowly started to wake up to reality because of police work because you know, we deal with people on their worst days on the worst day of their lives. And man, I've seen so many young black men in the street and I ain't never seen one KKK hood or one burning cross in the hood, hanging black people or killing black people. It has been by people in their neighborhood that look like them every time, every time, you know. And so I started questioning a whole lot of stuff, you know, and, and I said, I was always very educated on. I educated myself because I don't believe that, you know, you just listen to people and do what they tell you. That's how you have things like, you know, the Jonestown massacre happens. The pastors tells you, hey, give me all your money. Give me your wives. We're all moving to, you know, South America. Why? Because God drink told me, yeah, drink this Kool-Aid, yo, why? Because God said so. Okay, pastor, yo, I, I've never been that guy. Yo, so I've always been the type to, you tell me something, I'm going to go verify it. And they, and I remember I just started looking more so into politics, yo, and just like, and I just discovered like how the Democratic Party was the party actually of slavery and the KKK. Yo, and I just like, what? You know, and I just went down this rabbit hole, yo, and I just kept researching and researching and researching, like, like Frederick Douglass was a Republican, like, what? Yo, like, what? Because all my life, you know, it's just been told, you know, Democrats, black, you know, Democrats, they'll say black people and just, that's not the case. (laughs) That is not the case, you know, and just this self-awakening, man. And For me, it really came when I realized when I was in that parking lot, you know, with that gun in my lap and and I was going to kill myself. And then I realized, you know, I didn't want to, I wanted to die, but I didn't have the courage to do it myself. But it was my white sergeant and my white major. And then I started thinking back to when I was laying on the ground in Iraq about to die on January 2nd, 2005, it was my white medic, my white buddies, who at that time, I never saw them as white. I never saw these guys as white. They were just my boys. They were my, my homies. They were there to make sure I got home alive. you know? And I just remember all this hate and bitterness that I had learned from you know, these people, you know, and I'm just like, these people love me, man, and they don't care that I'm black, yo. Know? So why am I picking up all these burdens and carrying all this hate for people that never done anything to me but have done everything for me, you know, it just, and I just started looking at myself like, I'm a sellout, dude, like, what a horrible person I am, you know, that I would cast you know this blanket on all these people, these white people that done great stuff for me, you know? And then I just remember, man, Going into the police academy, I remember we were walking up the first day and some random old black dude just comes out smoking a cigarette, and he's like, you do realize, young man, that you're about to be working for a racist terrorist organization and terrorize your own people, and I'm just like, "Eh, man, I'm on your side, homie, black, you know, power to the people, you know, And, and it'll just, the way my police department came to me in the worst time of my life, you know, I lost my mother, suicide. I had 80 accidental discharge with my shotgun. I was going through my second divorce. My wife was cheating on me. I was ready to kill myself you know, and I had nothing. And I really thought I was gonna lose my job. I was still on probation when that happened with my shotgun. They had no reason to keep me. They had every reason to fire me. But my white major, Chris Defect, man, pulled me into that office and it was said, Dexter, we love you. We know you're a great man you're a great officer. We just want you to get better. And, you know, and tell us what we need to do to help you. And I didn't know how to answer that. I didn't know what I needed, but, but man, they tore down this fake, false imaginary hate in life that I had in my head. They completely tore it down. And it should have never been built because I said that was never my experience. But man, that's what we do as people, man, especially in the social media age, brother. Yo, know, We just, we get online and we read these memes and we read these short videos, watch these short videos and we take, other people's lived experience and we we stack it on ourselves and we carry that with us even though that's not been our lived experience nobody in America today can say they know what it's like to be a slave nobody no there's some people alive that can tell you about what it was like during the civil rights era, but most people today we are so far removed from that that's not been our experience man like I said I'm I live in a nice neighborhood in a nice house I'm surrounded by mostly white people. You know what? Ain't nobody in this neighborhood ever come out and say, You can't move over here, nigga. It's time to get out and move. You know, nobody's ever said that. Man, my neighbors watch my kids. You know, and it's just like, Man, why do we build these false imaginary worlds of hate? You know, we just learn to hate. And man, I had learned to hate, even though I was never taught to hate. And I don't know. It's so hard for me to explain how I got caught up in that mess, man, just because. When it's not of God, you know, and it killed me when I see Christian people, you know, they Christians that say I'm Christian, no, but I'm pro-black. I'm like, bro, you are a man of God. You know, God says, go and be fisher of men, not a fisher of black men. You know, we need to drop the color from that No, but, you know, black Christian or whatever, bro. It's like, no, just go out and serve people. Go out and save lives and save souls, man. Who are you to say one group deserves deserves to be saved better more than the other group? You know, that's that's not how this thing works. But for some odd reason, we are so attracted to color and everything in this country. And man, it's just so bizarre. And like I, say, I can say that because I was caught up in that world. I mean, where I use my skin color as a weapon, man. Skin color as a shield to protect me from my own bullshit. but Because I did not want to look at myself in the mirror beyond my skin and look at my own character, and my own flaws. So in order to keep myself, protect myself from doing that, I just use my skin color as a shield and say, it's because I'm black. But when you take away my the skin color and you're all you're left with is character, who are you and what are you? And I did not like who I was or what I was below my skin, you know, because I, like I said, I didn't know who I was. I know who I was supposed to be I know who people told me what i was supposed to be you know, but i didn't know who dexter Pitts was and so that's when when i wrote my book everybody's like why did you name it i am Pitts'?" i wrote named it i am Pitts" because i know finally know who i am because i have spent most of my life trying to be a chameleon trying to fit into groups you know just trying to fit in and be accepted and i would do or say whatever it took to be to fit in and be a part of the group and, and now at this point in my life I don't care about being a part of the group you know everybody asks me bro how is it that you're an active police officer and you are so vocal about this stuff and you're not scared because i am not afraid to be my own person i'm not afraid to be who god has designed me to be i know who i am and if who i am offends anybody if who i am offends my chain of command and my police chief i don't care that's on you to handle not me say judge me if i am bringing discredit to this department or if i am doing anything to you know, bring shame to this profession, but Pitts means something to people now. Pitts means something to me. Pitts means something to my kids. P personal responsibility. I integrity. T truthfulness. T man tenacity. S and that's the most important one. Selflessness, serving other people. You know, and I spent most of my life trying to serve myself, trying to fit in with every group I can because. You know i it was about me it was all about me just wanting to fit in and be cool with everybody and you know what man when you get to that lowest point in your life brother where i was in that car and it's just you in in your own rawness man it's just you and nobody else and you have to look at yourself and there's nobody there to blame you see who you are for now you see who you really are and it's hard to stomach man and i couldn't stomach who i was And that's why I was just ready to die, because I knew I was at a point where I could no longer put everything off of my skin color. And I had to take responsibility for the life that I had lived and the choices and the decisions I had made. I I hadn't made bad decisions in life, but I made enough of them that led me to live this fake life. man. And you can only live a double life for so long before it catches up with you. Just like my mother. My mother lived two separate lives. I never knew that she was a battered spouse a battered wife. But when you would see her in public, how you doing? Oh, blessed and highly favored, baby. How you doing? You know, just oh God, you know, just blessed, you know, just love the Lord, you know. But deep down, she had all these demons and was battling all this. And I never knew. And so for me, with my kids, I'm not gonna let what happened to my mother happen to me. And I'm not gonna let that affect and impact my children because they deserve a better life than that. And they deserve to know that, you know what? You're gonna have good days, you're gonna have bad days, but guess what? You are somebody, your last name means something. So you don't have to try to blend in with everybody because you don't need to blend in with everybody because God made you unique. You are not a photocopy of somebody else. You might have a lot of you know similarities between your father, but you're your own person at the end of the day. And I want my kids to be their own person. And it's hard to do because man, the pressure from, you know, social media. And my God, man, my kids are going to deal with a whole lot more than I ever have to deal with, you know, yo, but it's just like, man, how do I instill these good qualities and these, you know, and all this, these principles in my kids now to make them to wear their Teflon. So they don't have to live the fake life that I live for most of my life.
0: So how do you do it?
1: Lead by example, man. Lead by example. But like I said, I, my parents were, I mean, I had a good upbringing despite, how my mother's life ended and my parents' marriage ended, I had a good upbringing. then I've never been to jail. I've never been, you know, never. I've been put in handcuffs, you know, but that's because, I ain't gonna lie, man. They, they I got <laughs> I got misconstrued as the wrong person. They said it was a big black dude and I was walking down the street and they, I got detained. <laughs> <Ron> <laughs> hey, I was like, on you. <laughs> Ron and Terrell. <laughs> it was Dexter Pitts. <laughs> but yeah, you know, just spent, I lived, I, I do everything by example, man. Everything's about example, monkey see, monkey do, you know? And so for me, like, I just try to be as honest and genuine as possible. You know,
0: I, <sighs> there's something though that, that, that sticks with me about this. You built that pits principle. Uh, the thing that you explained about, when you got back from your R and R from everything that happened with your mom that happened with you, You've got this will to live and this desire and this drive now. First call out of the chute, suicide. Oh man, yeah. The reason I bring that up is because you work so hard to get to where you were gonna go, uh, to get through that. You see this automatically, and it it doesn't. I don't think it puts you back in a tailspin, but you definitely someone there knew. Hey, you got to get out of here. We got to work at this from a different angle. When you see that, you know that you'll never escape that in the job you're in. You're going to see it over and over and over again. You're going to see the hate that you're talking about. You're going to see the suicides, the death, everything that we've talked about the whole night. How do you continue turning that page, making that second chapter, and showing that you're bigger than all of that?
1: You know, uh, I heard a saying the other day that says, The more you do the right thing, the easier it becomes to do. And that's how i've continued to turn that page yo just i don't make any room for excuses in my life as much as possible you know i mean as a human you know we all make excuses yo but i i literally when something goes wrong and something messes up in my life the first thing i do is ask what did you do to cause this to happen you know the the first thing i used to do is like well it's cuz i'm black you know now it's more so of uh, like, no, it's not because I'm black. It's like, what did Dexter Pitts do? It's I am the fall man for my life. Every every decision I make has a consequence. And I realize that. And so for me, you know, I realize that, man, I'm going to have to make certain steps to win back people's trust in my work. Because as a police officer, if you can't work with people that you trust, bro. You can't work, period. I mean, these guys are going to be there in your worst moment if bullets start flying you got to believe that that person's going to be there yo and and i had lost my reputation as a police officer because i was reckless because i was selfish you know like i said i was working trying to get killed and die and, and people took notice like yo this mo- is crazy you know like what is wrong with this dude yo and so i like i said, i had to work overtime and your reputation on the police department is everything so i had to learn to put myself in a position to where I put others before me and humbled myself you know if my partner's already done like two reports i'm gonna do four because i feel like i owe that to him because i have to show him dude i'm here to work with you network against you you know i would be the first two calls and i would be the last on the call to leave if there's somebody at a crime scene standing there i go take the crime scene log because some that's the last job anybody wanted to do You know, I, instead of just standing around smoking and joking, I try to go and find work, you know, and I tried to prove to people that dude, you know what? I'm changed. I'm different. I'm not that guy anymore. And I say, it took me years of work to finally get a, build myself a better reputation to where people like, all right, this dude's all right, man. Because I was always told, yo, that once you use your reputation, it never comes back. So it's kind of like the redemption question you asked me earlier. You know, it's like, I don't believe that Once you get a reputation, it's always there. You know, I mean, it will be remnants of it, but it doesn't always have to be you. You know, and if you want that to be you, you got to realize you're going to have to work triple overtime man. you're going to have to work. You're going to have to put in the work nobody else wants to do.
0: Looking back at your whole career, everything that we've talked about tonight. uh, Is there anything you wish you would have done differently?
1: There's two things I wish I would have done differently. The first thing I wish I would have done differently is... joined the army and gone to ranger school because that was my sole purpose for joining the army i wanted to become a u.s army ranger the movie black Hawk down after 9 11 was is what inspired me to join and i was all in gung-ho on becoming an army ranger but i decided that you know what i'm gonna pass up this opportunity i'm gonna go home and get married because we're gonna be together forever and i will go to army ranger school later and later never came you know so that's one of my biggest regrets in life Oh, and the, something else i wish i would have done differently honestly in my police career and i am now dealing with the effects of it now but it's uh, done more deeper investigations and jobs in my early in my police career as a patrol officer you know so there's one thing i battle with still from my time in the military and that's my lack of confidence in myself you know and my Belief in myself and my ability to do something and be things, you know? and to, Because when you're in the, you know how it is, when you're in the army as a private man, you're a fucking idiot, you're stupid, you're stupid, you know, you're worthless, you know? And I was a sensitive person most of my life. And so when I got in the army and started hearing that from people, from leaders, I started to believe that, yo, know, that I was stupid and I was, you know, I'm not gonna accomplish anything, yo, know, I'm just, I'm dumb, you know? So, man, I've carried that with me for years, even though I know I'm not stupid and I know I'm not dumb, but but. I avoid things sometimes in police work that are hard, like administrative stuff, because I've never believed that I was capable of it. So when it would come to go doing going that extra mile to do the good investigation to where, hey, let's go get this warrant. Let's get this affidavit. Let's do this and serve it. You know, I avoided that stuff yo, because I was scared because I didn't think I was smart enough to do it and because I didn't want to look stupid and messing up, making a mistake because I didn't want to hear people's criticism of me So. Now, here I am, you know, 10, like what 12 years later, when it's just like, man, I'm now in a position on my police department where I am the salty 10 year veteran, you know, and people are looking at me, these new guys to know how to do certain things. And there's certain things in my career, like I should know how to do, but I don't do them often because, you know, as a patrol officer, how often do you really get to do warrants, you know? But I've always avoided that. And I've always avoid trying to be in a position of leadership because I've always felt like I was not a leader and I'm not a good leader. I've always felt like that because like I, said, I carry that stuff from the military, but that's not true. you know. And that's one of my biggest regrets is that I never took more chances to lead, that I never took more chances to do deeper police work and investigations because I never felt like I was smart enough to. And now I'm to the point where I'm confident I can do all these things, you know. but it's still that hesitation in the back of my mind where it's like, man, Like man, like we need an acting sergeant tonight. I'm just like, nope, (laughs) you know, don't want it to be me. (laughs) Don't (laughs) you know? So I'm at a point in my career where I'm battling back against that, and I feel like I'm a brand new rookie trying to learn things because I put it off for so long because I was so terrified of messing up and what other people think. But so what I'm doing now is I've decided for the first time in my career. I'm going to become a PTO, a police training officer, an FTO for all you old police officers out there. Yo, I don't know why they changed it, but, you know, just, man, I, it's time for me to start training people and giving back. And I had a young guy riding with me the other day for two days. I'm not I'm not a trained FTO. I'm not. But, man, he was asking me questions. And I realized I had so many answers to so many of these questions he was asking and how he was looking at me. And I was just like, man, I you know I, I can do this, man. Like, why can't I? Because, I, like I said, I can hear Staff Sergeant Linder in the back of my head and others, you know, and others you know, outranking soldiers just telling me I'm an idiot. you know? And it's just like, you know, I can still hear those voices. But, you know, the older confident me now, more confident as a police officer and seeing that people are looking to me for leadership, you know, it's just like, bro, it's time to step up to the plate, man. You know, it's time to step up because I've complained so long about the lack of quality of officers in this job and on my department. You know, I'm just like, man, what have I done about it? I've always made my runs, done my little investigations, and I've done, I go the extra mile, but when it comes to paperwork or certain things, I'll stop because I'll get scared and I'm like, nah, nah, I ain't doing it, I don't wanna look stupid. I'm now at a point in my career where I don't care if I look stupid because I want to learn because I want to learn that for me, but to learn for the guys that are coming up below me, these 21 year old guys that don't know much. I want to learn for them. So when I do eventually become a police sergeant, I will be able to lead these guys, not just lead them, but lead them with confidence and be a good leader and be, and be good enough of a leader to realize that, you know what, Hey, I might get this wrong and I might not know this, but guess what? We're going to go figure it out and find somebody that knows the right way.
0: That's a, that is a 180 degree change from earlier in your life. Let's talk about the podcast where people can find the book and where people can find you.
1: Yeah, man. So uh, I started the I Am Pits podcast back in, my God, this, I'm on episode 72. It was like, think it's March of 2021, 20, I believe. Yeah, March of 2021, I started the podcast. You know, the reason I started it, man, was man, just seeing everything going on with the riots and protests. You know, I mean, there are so many false narratives being put out and so many officers being trashed every day, you know, and just we're just taking all shuffling all this shit and just being crapped on every day. And it's like, we didn't have a voice and everybody was afraid to speak up and say anything. And I'm just like, how is it that we, as law enforcement officers in this country can ensure that everybody's first amendment rights are being upheld while they yell at us, screaming at us, curse at us, shoot at us. But the moment we try to say anything, we're scared that we're going to get fired. I'm like, no, i might be a police officer but i'm an american citizen first and there's this little thing people might not realize called the 13th amendment brothers was free now we speaking (laughs) you know i'll tell people I, i am not afraid to speak out you know and i started my podcast then because i felt like man officers needed a voice and people needed to hear what it's really like being a police officer in the city you know when your city's being burned down in front of you and what's going through your mind when you're on a protest line and people are telling you We're gonna rape and fuck your daughters and we're gonna kill your families you know night not just one time every day every night you know people don't realize what it was like for cops in 2020 man people have not the slightest clue so i started my podcast to reveal to people what it was really like during those times i mean i mean i still remember the night the the night of the brianna taylor verdict here in louisville man we got into a giant skirmish that day i made i made it to fox news man we Dude, we had to put the hands on this dude, man. And, you know, I mean, it was a wild day, yo. But I just remember the end of that day getting off the bus. And the next thing you know, gunshots rang out. You know, and just you know, two of our officers are down. And it makes nationwide news. And, you know, what we do the next day. Thank God our, my, my buddy survived. But we put on our uniforms and went back out there the next day. And we faced that storm of hate and all the yelling and cursing and threats. And we did it day after day after day after day. And man, police officers don't get enough credit in this world, man, for what we have done the last two years. when somebody has to be a voice for police officers, and somebody kind of has to lead the charge to where officers are not afraid to use their First Amendment rights to speak their mind and speak out when things aren't right. And you know, and a lot of guys are afraid of losing their jobs, and I understand that, you know. But you know, I believe that God has given me this responsibility, yo, because I'm in a special position to where Man, I am hundred percent retired from the army and the VA. No, I don't police because I need the money. I police because I believe in the job and I believe in this profession, man. And I believe in the constitution and I believe in protecting people. Cause like I said earlier, I know what it's like to be, to need protection, but not be able to stand up and protect yourself because you're scared. And I feel like I'm doing that with my podcast to the police profession, man, to where man, somebody's got to stand up and not be afraid to say what is really going on because everybody's afraid of the administration. But I am not afraid of my administration. I'm not afraid of my police chief. I'm not afraid of anybody. The only thing anything people can do to me in this life is kill me. And if that happens, guess what? I'm going to be with my mother. I'm going to be with God in heaven and all the people I've lost over the years, man. I'm not afraid of idle threats. And like I say I'm not doing my podcast to shame my police department. I'm not doing it to crap on people. Man, if anything, I am trying to bring light to the awesomeness of the men and women that I work with in the job we do every day. I want people to know what it's really like. I hope, you know, that people listen and be like, man, I want to go work with this guy or I want to be in this profession because this is still a great job. So I use my platform to, sh- make, you know, to shine on this profession. And when there's something wrong and a cop's done something wrong, I'll call it out and I'll say it, man. I'll give my opinion on it. People might not like it, it might offend the thin blue line, but you know what? We don't always get it right, you know? So, man, I'm very passionate about my podcast and it's just my opinion. It's not sponsored by my police department. And, you know, people have said, man, you better be careful. They're going to come after you. And I'm like, bro, come at me. I don't care. I am in my own time using my money on my free time. This ain't got nothing to do with y'all. If anything, y'all should be thankful that people, somebody's here that's speaking positive to y'all because everybody I know and work with, like, man, fuck this place and i'm trying to change that attitude and i'm trying to draw people to this profession that will change this police department from a place to where people are like i can't wait to get out of here to where people are like man this is where i want to be and i don't want to go nowhere else so i use my podcast for that you know and i talk about i get into politics a little bit and i I give my opinion but i am not a very political person because i just i mean i get tired of politics but at the end of the day i don't i don't want to do the political thing i want to do the right thing so so, like, man, if you ever want to listen to the I Am Pits podcast, I am on, on all major podcast platforms. So, you know, go to Apple, Google, Spotify, I'm on all of those. So whatever you listen to your podcast on, I'm on there.
0: Let's talk about where people can find the book because it is an amazing book.
1: I appreciate that, man. appreciate that. So uh, if you go to I am you get there's a link on there and it'll take you to Amazon. You can buy a copy. Or if I tell people, like, man, if you would like a signed autograph copy from me and everybody's like, man, why would I want a book from you? Who are you? I don't know. I just throw that out there, <laughs> man. You can just drop me an email at I am at yahoo.com, you know, and I'll tell you how to order a signed copy from me. And a lot of people ask me, which is better. Like, man, dude, I tell people book money is not necessarily the good money and I'm not in this for the money because if I was in this for the money, trust me, <laughs> I'm a fool. There is no money to be made, <laughs> you know, if anything, man, this is about, man, I want people to you know realize that they're not alone in their struggles and in their battles. And more importantly, man, like I want to, like I, I want to shine light on veterans. Those that have sacrificed for our country and the police officers in this country that get up and go do this job every day, knowing that, you know, what every call you take could be your last call, man. And so like I said, it's, I, I love my profession. I love my brothers and sisters in blue. I love my veterans. Most importantly, man, I love America. That's why I got this American flag behind me. This country has been good to me and my family. This country has been good to all of us, but for some odd reason, we're losing light of that. You know, we're digging up, you know, the past demons and the past sins of America and bring them to the forefront. Like, look at how horrible and evil this country is. And that is not the case. That's why I said in the book, man, we have to stop picking up these burdens from the past that none of us have ever carried and forcing these burdens uh, on our children to carry because that's not their burden to carry. It's so weird how we're fighting these battles that we, again, that we fought already years ago. And for some odd reason, it's like we're resegregating ourselves now. And I I hate that. And I just also want people to know, you know what, man? We don't have to be a country that's on this side or the left or the right side. That's that's not America, man. It is all about taking care of your fellow man and doing the right thing. You don't have to be a conservative to be a good person. You don't have to be a Democrat to be a good person. You could be a good person regardless of whatever political party or philosophy you follow. Because at the end of the day, when I was laying on that ground in Iraq, dying, I didn't give a damn what political party, what color that person was. I I just like, yo, whoever's here, help me. And it was the same thing when I was in Louisville during the riots and the protests. I did not care what the dude to the left or my right looked like. All I cared was, yo, you got my back? All right, cool, I got yours, man. Let's make it home. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. So we got to learn at some point in time to put all this pettiness aside and just see each other as people. Yes, we have differences, but you know what? We have a lot more in common than we have that separates us. But like I said, it's all about what are you looking for? I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for unity. I'm looking for peace and looking for love. But make no mistake. If you want to bring war and you know, war and craziness to me, I'll bring it back to you.
0: Dexter, I'm so honored that you were on here. You have an amazing story. Guys, uh, if you want to find some more of Dexter, once again, I am pits.com, the I am Pitts podcast on all major podcasts. Go there to find his book. It'll take you to a link on Amazon. And you can get a hold of him at Iampitz at Yahoo.com in order to get an autograph copy. He doesn't know why people want to do that, but maybe you do. Get a hold of my man, try and get you an autographed copy. If you want more of me, you know you can always find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form at the DTD podcast. But don't forget the one stop shop, DTDpodcast.net. It's got the audio, the video pictures of my man Dex it's got where you can find his book all of his links everything you need to know about him and his story is right there once again dtdpodcast.net also don't forget to go to our sponsor at policecoffee.com you know they're an officer-owned business they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide the freshest copy available each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavors concern. concerned. There's coffee some of the best you'll find. I talk about it every week, but the most important cause from it, they give back to our community – of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. Guys, please go and check them out. They are an amazing sponsor. They do everything they can for the show and they do for those brothers and sisters in blue. Remember policecoffee.com and when you put in your order, DJK10 for 10% off your order. Well, I think that's going to be it for the show tonight. Make sure you check out his book, I Am Pitts. Make sure you check out his podcast, and make sure you come back and check out all the stories here every week at the DTD podcast. That's going to be it for tonight. That's Dexter. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We're out of here, guys. See you later.